Hello, it's 11th of August 2019 and this is episode 112 of Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel and in Kirsty's absence, I'm joined by... Lisa. Yes. So basically I'm going to wing this a bit. So obviously we have like our little script about the fact that we offer Star Wars news analysis and commentary with focus on the sequel trilogy in the future of the saga, which we 100% do. But this is different because there's no Kirsty this time. Um, because if you listened to the last episode we put out, um, you will have heard that Kirsty was taking some time off from the podcast to have her baby. And I'm very happy to say that she has now had her baby, who is absolutely adorable and precious and all the other adjectives you would expect an adorable baby to be furnished with. And yeah, just so many congratulations and good wishes to her. And everyone's been so lovely with their kind words. So yeah, it's really appreciated. Um, but yeah, for the purposes of this episode, um, I have Lisa on as my guest and I'm really happy to have her on. I first encountered Lisa through a commentary she and her husband Dan did for The Force Awakens. And that blew my little proto-fan mind. I, I was a proper fan at that time. But Lisa's just very eloquent and good at expressing things. And it makes me feel all stumbly and unprepared by comparison. So yeah, I thought she would be a great person to bring on the show. Would you just like to talk a little bit about your fandom, Lisa, and give people a bit of a sketch for your relationship with Stars? Oh, yeah. Well, thanks for the kind words, first of all. That's super sweet. Um, yeah, so uh, I'm a longtime Star Wars fan. I saw the original trilogy in the theater as a child. Um, so I've been, you know, you know, not a super fan, but, a you know, a good, solid Star Wars fan for most of my life. And um, I think when... Uh, the Force Awakens came, Awakens came out. My husband and I um, ended up talking about it every single day for months. Um, and I particularly was especially taken with it um, and had a sort of a really special affection for it that I was having a hard time figuring out what to do with. And I think at some point when the DVD came out, um, Dan said to me, you know, there's not a commentary on it. We could do a commentary for the film. And that would be some place to sort of put, you know, my love. And I was like, yeah, let's, let's do that. And so we did that. And it was, it was great. We had a really fun time doing it. And we've done subsequently done a number of commentaries, including one with you on mm-hmm. <laughs> um, The Force Awakens Close to Release, which was a, a ton of fun and was great because you have a very different perspective from Dan to some extent. And so sure. yeah. it's nice to, you know, go over the film another time. Um, but it, yeah, it was great. And uh, and then I think, you know, at some point, I you know, I, early on, I became a fan of y- your podcast and actually reached out to Kirsty originally, kind of hoping, half hoping Kirsty would do a commentary with me. Mm. Um, and you know, I played the long game, didn't really work out with Kirsty, <laughs> but, uh, but you, you graciously agreed to do it. And so that was super, super fun. And then I think, to be honest, I think you and I, I don't know how well you were aware of this, but I think you and I s- sort of ran across each other periodically in other forums, right? I think I'm on Reddit quite a bit mm-hmm. and, yep. uh, on Tumblr some and stuff. And so I think, you know, I think I was reading your stuff for a long time before I knew it was associated with this podcast. So it's cool. Thanks for having me. I'm very glad to have you. So yeah, thank you so much for agreeing to come on. Um, it's a bit of a 
scary but exciting endeavor to do it with a different setup like this you know because obviously it's been going for god over two years um but it's always been me and Kirsty. we've obviously had guests but to just do it with me and a guest is a different offering and yeah like it's fun and i'm really excited to see how we got on i feel like we've done lots of preparation for this episode so i feel like everything is in our favour for this. Yeah, so I feel like that's probably enough introduction for now, although I'm sure we'll delve into who we are and our opinions and stuff more as we get on with things. But yeah, for now, let's move into the news. So the first thing that we want to talk about is that we have an announcement for an adorable series of rolly shorts. Um, I don't really know how to describe, like, What's going on in these? It's basically the sequel trilogy characters modelled as like BB-8 style cartoony things. How would you describe it, Lisa? Sorry, I'm like, words are failing me. Yeah, I mean, that looks like every character is is more or less BB-8 to some extent. Um, yes. Yeah, no, it's super adorable. Um, and so, the, I mean, these were based on an original short, correct? That was in Japan? Yeah. yeah, that's right, because they put out a short film in the same style, summarising the key events of The Force Awakens, which is adorable. And for my interests, it shows the abduction, which is like, this is the cutest abduction ever. Um, because, yeah, it's little Rolly Kylo Ren dragging along little Rolly Ray, And, yeah, it's adorable. It shouldn't look that adorable, but it does. And yeah, I was really excited to see this series announced because I sort of had the impression that was a one and done thing. So to see that they're really pursuing it and doing a whole series of them is quite exciting. Yeah, we actually have a little quote here from the chap who's behind it. So I apologise in advance what is bound to be horrible pronunciation. My like stab at this is Hideo Itayanagi. Um, so again deep apologies and yeah he just gave a little spiel I wanted to come up with something never before seen in Star Wars animation I wanted to give everything a totally different look given that the characters are caricatured I decided to make the background simple with paper cut out silhouettes put on top of each other like something you might see in a picture book the camera motion is quite flat and might remind you of old video games I wanted to take a different route from 3D animation and recent video games so yeah and that comes through it's a very very simple stylized form of animation but it's really nice and cute and they need to do like a hello kitty-esque line of merchandise because i'd buy it oh yeah totally this this is totally set up for collectibles i think no definitely and and obviously one of the big talking points from this has been the fact that there is a mystery small rolly person in the promo for this series and it's kind of dressed like Han Solo with a jacket and trousers slash pants um, and it has like a little mop of black hair and of course people's minds instantly go into Ben Solo and yeah I think it's likely to be him because I don't see any other plausible candidates but it's so stylized it's like well it doesn't look like Adam Driver but no one looks like their actor do they so yeah, I, I have to say, I, I I saw that too. I think Dan pointed out it out to me and sort of said, "Who who? What is this little dark-haired one?" And I was like, "Oh, that must be 
Ben Solo because I can't imagine what else it is. It, it's not a a young a young young Poe Dameron. I don't think so. So um, I, th- I think it's probably Ben. I think it probably uh, hopefully sort of presages some some scenes we get in the next movie that include young Ben. But but maybe it's just purely for the cartoon. It's hard to say. Yeah. Like if it is young Ben, that definitely feeds into the this whole idea of yeah, they're seriously trying to humanize this dude, because the equivalent would basically be you're in 1982, Return of the Jedi is about to come out, and they release like a, an animated short showing like young Anakin getting into like cute adventures with his mum Shmi on Tatooine, and <laughs> people would be like, huh? Yeah, like, obviously I'm biased, but my read of the story is they're setting Kylo Ren up for redemption. And if that is indeed the path they're going down, then it makes a lot of sense to show him as an adorable little child, presumably doing cute little child things that will endear him to people. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm excited to see see what happens. So. <laughs> exactly. Watch it be Young Poe, though. <laughs> Just watch it. <laughs> That'd be so cruel. To do that to it folks. would be cruel yeah they've let us believe <laughs> so the next thing that we want to talk about is that don williams who's apparently the brother of john williams i was intrigued by this because i had no idea john williams had a brother it, it makes a lot of sense many people have siblings but it still kind of surprised me um yeah he was basically given an interview and he dropped some deets about the rise of skywalker would you like to read the quote lisa uh sure uh, so the quote is, started up with another Star Wars. We started on it last week. He's got 135 minutes worth of music to write. That kind of tells you how long the film is. It is top to bottom music. I can tell you that every theme you've ever heard is going to be compiled into this last effort. Leia, Yoda, the Phantom, Darth, all of it's going to be in there. In his usual style, he hides them. You've got to go looking for them. My first thought when I read this, well, listen to it because it's an audio interview, was that um, Christy Carew, friend of the podcast and composer of the Scavengers Horde theme, is going to freak out in the best possible way about this because, yeah, it sounds super exciting. Mm-hmm. And it also indicates that we might be in for an extremely long film. It probably is indicative of that, but I do, you know, the soundtrack doesn't exactly match the length of the movie. Like there's a, you know, a certain calculus to it. I, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, it was a extraordinarily long soundtrack just in its own right, just because it's the last, you know, piece of, you know, music that we get for Star Wars. It's sort of its own orchestral piece. So yeah, I think it's hard to say how it translates into film length. Yeah, no, Slayer is actually a really interesting comparison list that someone called Brad Free Gun from the Star Wars Leaks subreddit has put together just basically listing the length of the soundtrack alongside the length of the film, um, which is quite interesting. So just for example, to go to the two most recent saga films, Force Awakens, the score was 77 minutes and the film's 135 minutes. And then Last Jedi score 77 minutes again and the film was 153 minutes so that approximately works out as there's about half the length of the film in music and just to be clear here i don't for a minute think that rise of skywalker is going to be 260 minutes long (laughs) it's not going to be lawrence of arabia (laughs) i would be happy with rise of skywalker being that long that'd be cool 
I'm up for it. <laughs> exactly. We'd be there, 100%, no complaints. But it would be challenging, I think, to sell Bob Iger on that prospect when you're calculating stuff like, oh, but we'd have so many reduced show times. This mm. would have X impact on our bottom line. No, JJ, you can't. Um, oh, it breaks my heart. So, as Lisa said, you can't rely on this too much to give a sense of how long the film will be. I'd say, I don't know, like, because it's not an exact science and it's so difficult, I think it's going to be on the longer side, just because there's so much to wrap up. And if they are recording this level of music, that definitely supports that, but is not confirmed by any means, basically. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if the film was on the slightly longer side, but I think you're right about the constraints uh, commercially to, to doing that. Um, but, you know, I think for me, the more exciting part is the, the part of the quote where he sort of says that, like, all the, th- the themes will be found in that last soundtrack. And so, um, yeah, I you know, what does that mean? Is that, you know, are they just little tributes to the different pieces of the saga or are they really significant to the film you know with some of the stuff we've heard that is spoilery it sounds you know not implausible that you might be able to work some of the themes in in a meaningful way too so yeah no like that's what i was also really excited about so i think most people are talking about the length thing but that's so nebulous and difficult to pin down that it's kind of hard to talk about but the more concrete thing is yes we are going to get these allusions to these prior themes which is really exciting i did kind of cut my transcription short a bit because he goes on to talk and i'm paraphrasing but he said that sometimes it's really brief it's just a question of two or three notes so i think some of these references they are going to be extremely subtle and it's going to be people like David Collins, who's like an expert in Star Wars music, who pick up on those tiny details, but they might not register with like randos like me, who are kind of musically illiterate <laughs> um, for the most part. Um, yeah, but it is really cool. So I always like hearing those old themes, as well as hopefully new ones, because I'm sure there will be a lot of new music in there as well. Um, are there any particular themes from the past movies that you'd really love to see integrated in this? And is there any particular reason why? Oh, I don't know. I mean, there, I lean towards the sequel trilogy these days so much. I just kind of would be just happy to have those reiterated. Um, I, you know, I like the, any, any of the Han and Leia stuff I always like. Um, mm. uh, yeah, I don't know. Do you have some particular themes that you're looking forward to? Like like you, I think the Star Wars music that speaks to me the most at the moment is stuff from the sequel trilogy, like Ray's theme. I would love to see Ray's theme come back in a more mature version, which I think already happened a bit in The Last Jedi. But I feel like I'd just love to see like a whole new take on it, because everything we've heard leads us to believe that Rise of Skywalker is taking place about a year after The Last Jedi and I feel like we are going to be seeing much more developed mature versions of the characters in this movie and yeah I feel like it's a great time to really revisit those themes and rethink them a bit. Yeah I I think uh, seeing the the music already come to fruition right like you have these incipient things that it's how how they're going to change probably for the sequel themes that will be interesting. Exactly. You can read so much into those changes. It's funny. 
And then the last piece of news we want to discuss, and perhaps the biggest, is that there has been a new book announced that will be narrated from Luke's perspective. Um, And the reason we wanted to discuss it last is because it feeds in seamlessly to our spotlight discussion, which will be heavily focused on the story of Luke in The Last Jedi, um, which we'll go into the reasons why we're discussing that in a minute. But yeah, patience, younglings. Um, Yeah, so I will just read out the corporate spiel that announced this book. Um, Right. So StarWars.com is excited to reveal Star Wars Secrets of the Jedi, a new book from author Mark Sumerek, chronicling the history of the Jedi Order with Luke Skywalker as your guide. Coming November 19th from Insight Editions, the tome is filled with lush paintings and special interactive features, including a pop-up holochrome, a translator card, a Jedi equipment booklet, and more. Yeah, then there's lots of quotes and stuff about people saying how awesome it is. Um, And yeah, I will read one from the author, actually, so it's kind of interesting. One of the greatest challenges of a book like this is to find a way to bring all of the vital information together in a way that feels fresh and new, Simurik says. For this particular project, I think that unique perspective flows naturally from our beloved narrator, Luke Skywalker. Sure, we all know his epic story by heart, but the Luke who is writing this particular tome is a long way from the optimistic farm boy he was when his journey began. Because of that, he's able to look past the glorified stories of the Jedi of old, to find the truth about the Order, no matter how difficult it may be for those reading to hear. So with that in mind, we were able to examine the different aspects of the Jedi Order from an angle that cut through the ancient legends, allowing us to examine why the Jedi needed to exist, why they were destined to end, and whether or not they could, or should, rise again. So yeah, exciting. Like, how did you react when you saw that this had been announced as such a perfect tie-in for our spotlight discussion, Lisa? <laughs> yeah, well, we couldn't have planned it better, I guess. But um, <laughs> It was yeah. destiny. Yeah. Well, and I, I sort of mentioned to you when you, you brought this up to me that I think this is kind of a fun thing because I, I just feel like we could have a little bit more Luke point of view content out of there, uh, out of the franchise right now. And um, sure. there's certainly a hunger for it. And so... Um, I think it's going to be really cool. Yeah, no, it seems like a really interesting prospect. And there's also lots of preview pages on stars.com. So I'd recommend that people go and check those out because it's also lavishly illustrated. And you get to see wonderful sights like this really hippy dippy illustration of like all the force ghosts just like hanging together. And I'm not sure how literally I'm meant to take it, but I am quite literal with these things. So I'm like, oh, look at all those like force priestesses and Anakin and Yoda and Obi-Wan all just chilling together. Doesn't this look great? Yay. And it looks like they're having a big party. Yeah, it's very nice. And yeah, perhaps most pertinently for our discussion, there's also a big spread on the sequel trilogy that features really cool illustrations, um, including hilariously several illustrations of Adam Driver as Kylo Ren, but they're clearly modelled on his appearance from this movie called Hungry Hearts that's this like really intense indie drama about a guy who's trying to save his baby. So... <laughs> Like when you know Adam Driver's filmography and you can see so clearly that they've lifted his likeness precisely from screen caps from those movies. It's like, uh, you just can't look past it sometimes. But yeah, I have actually picked out a few quotes from this spread on the sequel trilogy and I thought we could 
take turns to read them and then have a little discussion about each one. Yeah, so would you care to read out the one on the post-Return of the Jedi era? Um, sure. After the Empire fell and the Sith Lords were vanquished, I had great hope for the future of the Jedi. I came to believe that if a single Jedi could help bring bring balance back to the Force, then perhaps a restored Jedi Order could maintain the peace and prevent the dark side from ever regaining its hold on the galaxy. So I scoured worlds for the remaining Jedi texts and gathered a new class of apprentices under my tutelage. I was playing the role of Jedi Master, but it wasn't a title I had formally earned, and it was one I would soon prove I didn't deserve. Ouch. (laughs) Yeah, it's been very, very Uh. (laughs) self-critical. Wow. Um, yeah, so it's pretty painful to read, poor dude. And you can tell he's been beating himself up a lot, basically, reading this. Yeah, how, how do you react reading this, Lisa? Like you said, this is kind of leads into the spotlight topic pretty pretty well. I mean, I have a lot of feelings about this. We can go into them shortly, I would say. Yeah, no, that's true. We don't want to tread on our own toes too much. So, right, and then we have a passage on what happened with Ben, which I will read. He might now be known as the First Order's most feared warrior, but Kylo Ren didn't always walk the path of darkness. Long ago, he was one of my Padawans in the New Jedi Order, but we shared more than just our devotion to the old ways. We shared the fabled Skywalker blood, the son of my friend Han Solo, and my sister Leia. Ben Solo was my nephew, my responsibility, and my greatest failure. Leia could see the darkness taking hold of her son and entrusted me with helping Ben find balance. Yet, as the darkness continued to grow in the boy, I wasn't strong enough to stop it from taking hold. My mistakes pushed Ben further away from the light, and he dragged the galaxy into the darkness with him. After he burned our temple to the ground and slaughtered any students who refused to follow him to the dark side, Ben donned a mask, like his grandfather before him, and took a new name claiming his place at the side of Supreme Leader Snoke. Dun dun dun. So this isn't really spelling out anything radically new that we didn't already know from The Last Jedi, but it is interesting to me as an exercise in perspective because we can't take this as the final objective authoritative account of what happened, but it does clearly spell out for us that Luke understands things to have happened in this fashion basically and yeah for me to be blunt this is just more confirmation that the kids who followed Ben when he left the temple they are the Knights of Ren basically I just feel it's way too messy to have a bunch of his peers follow Ben when he leaves the Jedi Order who like join him in the dark side but then something random happens to them and he sort of picks up a whole different posse that then become the Knights of Ren. I think that's just messy. I think they need to be the same. What yeah. do you think? Yeah, that makes sense, right? I mean, are there people out there that think the opposite? I've never seen anybody say that and I've never felt that was particularly plausible. Yeah, like I've seen lots of people argue that they're not like other students of Luke's hmm. for, ver- for various reasons. Um, I think with some people it's a question of they hate the thought of Luke having lost more students than Ben to the dark side, basically. So oh. they think that makes his failure that much worse and that much greater. Mm-hmm. So for a long time, people really wanted to believe that Ben either killed all of them or if any of them did survive, they're like in hiding and, and they're still out there as 
like good people waiting in the wings to join the fight you know but i think something like this kind of dispels that narrative and i think more recently people have made observations like well it doesn't seem like the knights of ren are force users and luke's other students presumably were force users so therefore they can't be the same but i haven't seen any concrete evidence that the knights of ren can use the force basically so i don't buy that as an argument yeah i'm not sure why people would say that because there's so little information about them except for maybe their weapon choices right i think that's it it's because they don't have lightsabers yeah yeah i don't know um having them become be his former students i guess makes it seem like luke's failure is is larger than what happened with ben solo and so many people sort of struggle with grappling with that even even the tiny bit that's given to us in The Last Jedi, that I suppose expanding a sense of failure for him is maybe too much for some people, and for that reason they might not want to believe that those are his former students. But it seems to make sense to me. Yeah. No, and me too. So, yeah. It'll be really interesting. So I think what we're going to see in that comic series from Charles Soule that's coming out just before the movie, or at least the first issue of it is, um, I think we're going to see kylo slash ben's perspective on all those events which i think will be so interesting so obviously this isn't a deep exploration of exactly how luke thought things went down but it's a general overview and i'm really looking forward to seeing a more detailed insight into what actually happened yep me too cool right then we have the next quote which is luke ruminating on his failure would you care to read that one lisa I had failed, failed to restore the Jedi Order, failed to protect my own students, failed to save my own flesh and blood from our family's dark legacy. It was clear I was not fit to be a Jedi Master, but I had finally realized a difficult truth. No one was. So as chaos continued to rise around me, I chose to end the Jedi Order once and for all. Wow, yeah. So again, super fits into what we're going to discuss today. Um and uh that's nice it's kind of a very clear uh statement of what i think uh they were trying to convey um in the last jedi um yeah. straight straight from luke's own voice here no 100 percent. it's very lucid and reading it honestly even helped me think like oh that's where his mind was right um because yeah as we'll go into in more detail when we get to the spotlight like I have struggled to engage with Luke's perspective to some extent you know like I I can understand where he's coming from but I haven't been able to have that really powerful identification with his situation that I think you've had yep so yeah like his reading something like this it's like the ABCs of Luke Skywalker (laughs) in the last Jedi film (laughs) sorry that's sort of petered out um but yeah it's what I needed basically to be spelled out in really simple terms because yeah i'm not dumb but sometimes you just need clarity in these things sure i think i think like you said if if a character has a set of experiences that you're not you you don't have a deep personal connection with sometimes uh being subtle or oblique or not entirely stated is um not the easiest way to get inside their head yeah cool and then finally we have a little passage about ray which i will read I might have been done with the Jedi Order, but the Jedi Order wasn't done with me. 
after I spent many lonely years watching porgs take roost on the cliffs of my new home on Act 2. A visitor suddenly arrived with my long-lost lightsaber in her hand and hope in her eyes. Ray said she had come searching for a hero, so I'm sure she wasn't thrilled with the broken old man she found in his place. Yet the moment I saw her, I sensed something familiar in this young girl from a desert planet in the middle of nowhere, and I knew she hadn't really come to Act 2 looking for a hero at all. Ray needed someone who could help her harness the raw, untapped power flowing through her. She needed a teacher. Hmm, where have I heard that before? <laughs> you need a teacher! I can show you the ways of the Force! <laughs> yeah, sorry, that's probably a little bit too overwrought. But um, yeah, it, that's so interesting to me that that's sort of the note on which that passage about Ray ends. Because Luke really doesn't do much teaching of Ray in The Last Jedi. It's more like, I'm going to teach you why I'm not going to teach you. Which, yeah, again, there's good reasons for that. But yeah, it's quite fascinating that he acknowledges that need. But then, I, I don't know, maybe the book goes on to have him saying, I couldn't actually really teach her what she needed to know because of blah and blah. Which is hopefully what does actually happen in the book. But yeah, if that is literally where it ends in the book, then using creative license here Luke you're not being completely honest about the situation you know I mean I think he did try to teach her some stuff uh you know in his own way it wasn't stuff she wanted um and yeah. she certainly didn't you know take any of it seriously it felt like so I'm not yeah. surprised by this quote this seems pretty much in in sync with the you know the last Jedi as well yeah it's pretty much describing what we see so yeah it's not too totally radical so yep, but now we will move on to our spotlight discussion, um, where you will find that we actually talk about some of the stuff that we're like, oh, we can't talk about this right now <laughs> in the last segment. Because um, yeah, this spotlight, it's going to be a discussion of Luke Skywalker and his journey specifically in The Last Jedi. Um, and the reason that we're going to talk about this is I have approached all the guest hosts that I'm bringing on to basically get them to volunteer what they would like to talk about. And Lisa chose to talk about how The Last Jedi explored and portrayed Luke as a person in a later stage of life. So obviously we have all these stories and particularly in Star Wars we have all these stories about young people coming of age and finding themselves and testing the limits of who they are and how they relate to the world etc etc. But they're obviously doing something quite different with the Luke character in The Last Jedi but it's something that even though he's not the protagonist is still given a lot of weight and there's a lot of care and craft put into it. So yeah, would you like to talk a bit about why you wanted to talk about this topic, Lisa? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think there were two main reasons I was interested in talking about it. One, you know, I think just from an abstract point of view, um, I think the handling of Luke in The Last Jedi is an interesting one to me in the co wider context of the Star Wars st saga and stories in that it's a little bit interesting um, in that uh, you get an older character's point of view, and um, it's there's a certain um, sense that it's there. You get some of their subjective point of view in the film instead of just them as sort of an object or a tool in somebody else's story. So um, you know, I mean, Star Wars generally is sort of often considered and framed as sort of a fairy tale, 
And as a fairy tale, it's meant to be sort of a metaphor for uh, young people growing up. And mm-hmm. for that reason, you get older characters in the movies, and um, but they, they're, they're often, you know, lightly touched on and um, are more consistently seen from the younger character's point of view. And I, I was online recently, and I was on like Reddit, I saw somebody post, and they said, why? I don't like how all these characters die in Star Wars. Like every movie, a character I like dies. And he listed off the characters who die, and they're all older characters and I was like oh well, let me explain this to you it's a fairy tale <laughs> and in a fairy yeah. tale you have to have the older characters die so the younger characters can come into their own because you know these fairy tales are usually sort of framed as a metaphor for adolescence and so in order to to grow up you have to leave you know your parents behind and the older generation behind and s- strike out new and find your own way and stuff so yeah so old char- characters we not surprisingly sort of kill off midway through a movie and um uh i think you know and and, and you know the, i mean effectively that happens to luke in this movie which i i wasn't surprised by coming into the movie but the thing that i was surprised by um was how um thoughtfully his own story was taken and how we do get um invested in his own point of view mm-hmm. on what's going on with him and they do take his challenges seriously and I do think that there's an argument to be made that there is, along with the younger characters' sort of fairy tale adventure in this movie, um, there is a component in which we are similarly going with Luke through a transition of life of his own. Um, it's not a, a transition of adolescence, but it's you know a transition that an older person has to go through, and it bears some similarities to the way uh, a younger character is handled and how a younger person has to transition into a new stage of life. So that's super interesting to me. And then the other part that, um, you know, makes it appeal to me, I think is, um, uh, I, I am an older person. So I saw the original trilogy. I saw star Wars when it first came out in 1977 in the theater as a child. So, um, at this point I'm not quite as old as Luke, but I'm an older person person i'm a parent of teenagers a lot of the a lot of the things that like han and leia and luke go through in the sequel trilogy are um things that you know are writ large and kind of this you know grand um mythic sort of status but you know very easily map onto real life experiences that i have effectively as a parent as an older person as a mentor and stuff so it has a real appeal for that reason and I have to say, when I saw The Last Jedi, I, you know, I, I, I got it seriously into the sequel trilogy in Star Wars again because I was invested in these younger characters. For me, particularly Rey, but, um, but uh, I think, um, so when I got to The Last Jedi, I was invested in sort of largely Rey and Kylo and what was going to happen to them, um, and. I, you know, I was a bit taken aback by what happened with Luke and Leia in the movie. It was a surprise to me. It was delightful. To some extent, I'm almost more fond of that stuff in the movie than I am of the Rey and Kylo stuff. And I'm Mm -hmm. sure it's kind of a combination of the fact that I got spoiled on the Rey and Kylo stuff before the film came out. Right, Um, yeah. Yeah, which is my own fault. But um, (laughs) You were weak. I I was weak. Um, and the Luke and Leia stuff, I, at least the, I mean, 
like some of that stuff I knew was going to happen. And I think like when you and I did a commentary together, um, I made one prediction at the end of that commentary and it was that, you know, that Ray was going to find Luke on the island. Luke was going to be afraid of something and Luke was um, not going to come back to um, the fight uh, except for somebody he loved. And that would have to be Leia and, and then Leia would probably get hurt. So like, like the first, first part of the movie, I felt like I knew what was going to happen. But yeah. the resolution I thought was beautifully handled and the whole stuff about, like I said, the transitional stuff about Luke coming to terms with what happens to a person in life at that age, I think is, um, was really moving and well done. And, and I really enjoyed it. And so that's why I want to talk, talk about it. Cause I know I'm, you know, considerably older than you and Kirsty, And I think I can give a, bring us a, a slightly different you know, personal perspective to that space too. So yeah no which is awesome because yeah like we like to have different voices and people who have different outlooks and interpretations of things because Kirsty and I we do obviously have differences of opinions sometimes and different interpretations and reads but obviously a big part of the reason why we have a podcast together is that yeah on a lot of stuff we do have the same baseline and we do have similar interpretations a lot of the time even though we can complement each other and both make different observations etc etc but yeah for something like this especially to talk about a character like Luke who does still feel a bit more remote to me it's really valuable to get someone on board who can have that level of identification so yeah I'm really looking forward to this it'll be good right okay so what we're going to do is we are going to like talk about Luke's journey in The Last Jedi in some detail well, we'll go through the different phases that it goes through and how he evolves. Um, but before we do that, we just wanted to run through a few quotes direct from the horse's mouth, so to speak, to just build up this foundation for understanding where Ryan Johnson specifically as the writer-director was coming from and what he was trying to do with Luke's story. Um, yeah, so would you care to read out the first interview question and the answer, Lisa? Uh, sure. Um, so this is, it looks like StarWars.com. So they say, Luke's shadow looms over this movie, and in a sense it did over The Force Awakens too. How do you view Luke Skywalker, the Luke Skywalker of now? And Ryan Johnson answers, well, I can't say too much because discovering that is part of the adventure of this movie um, and part of the journey of this movie. But you know so much of what his character was in this movie and what defined it was a combination of, like I said before, feeling like it was led down a certain path by the big choice he had made to be in exile. And then beyond that, Luke's story in this movie, to a certain degree, serves Ray's story. So that was the other element of this. Wherever he was going to be at and whatever he was going to go through, I couldn't just think of it in a vacuum. The trilogy is not just Luke's story. At the end of the day, it's Ray who's carrying us through this whole thing. Obviously, Ray and Finn, those are like the two big characters. But in this section of the story, meaning the island stuff, it's Ray. So I had to think about him in tandem with Ray, and that was great. Also, because that kind of meant thinking about him in tandem with myself and as fans, our relationship to Luke as a legend and as this hero that we grew up with, who we now haven't seen for a number of years and we're approaching with expectations of what he's going to be yeah I think this quote is really helpful because it's a reminder of 
like how many layers there are to this characterization of Luke in The Last Jedi. This is not just that we're seeing Luke's perspective of things and we're seeing Ray's perspective of Luke and to also and also to some extent we're seeing Kylo's perspective of Luke. Um, because we're also seeing that like our own perspective of Luke is in the meta level where we all come at Luke in this movie with a certain set of expectations and beliefs about what that character is and how he's going to act and behave. And Ryan really had to engage with that and think, okay, so how can I take all those different facets and make something coherent and believable and honest from them? So, yeah, he had a big task, basically. Yep. Pretty intimidating, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And then I'll take the next bit. So, StarWars.com. I know you said once before that when you were growing up, you were a Luke guy. He was your favourite, and he was mine too. He's a character I feel like I've learned a lot from. Having that kind of responsibility, to take a character that meant a lot to you as a kid and now move him forward or reintroduce him, how do you wrap your head around that? Ryan, you keep your eyes down on the path and take one step at a time. Laughs. <laughs> like what I was describing about trying to draw a straight line forward based on what I knew from the previous one, and also just trying to get inside Luke's head, put yourself in his shoes. In real life, I don't think even the most famous person in the world, when they're making decisions in life, is thinking about what their relation to that fame is and that big false projection of themselves on the global stage, or in Luke's case, the galaxy, never having or never going to experience that, my guess is that is something that is only an obstacle towards figuring out what the best thing to do is moving forward. I guess also putting myself in Luke's shoes, it had to come back down to what the current situation is, what he thinks is the best thing to do moving forward, why he's doing that, and how he's getting there. Just boiling it down to the basic questions, and not thinking of the big, oh my god, this is Luke Skywalker, of it all. Yeah, do you have any specific thoughts on that quote or the sentiments Ryan's expressing, Lisa? Yeah, I mean, I think this is nice. I mean, I think this is part of what I think allowed him to do the job that got me sort of connected to Luke on a human level, right? Just treat him mm -hmm. like a person and put real sort of human motivations behind his actions and see where that leads you, so... I'm reading a quote like that, again, it's on the subject of it being helpful for me to have things spelled out quite plainly. The stuff that he says about like having this fame and having to project yourself and being aware of your presence on this global stage. like That's really interesting to see Ryan articulate it in those terms. It really makes me think of those final moments with Luke on Cray as a literal projection. And the whole idea of that story then being spread across the galaxy. I'm sure we'll talk about this in more detail shortly. But yeah, it's just eternally impressive to me how the story functions on all these different levels. Yeah, totally well-made, interesting film from a whole variety of perspectives. So, mm -hmm. And also, because obviously in recent episodes of Scavengers Horde we've been talking a lot about the mythological underpinnings of things and the folkloric ones um, we found a really interesting quote from Ryan Johnson talking about the specific like myths and themes influenced the character of Luke in The Last Jedi so again as a foundation and we're going to go more into mythological stuff shortly I thought I'd read this out so we have 
for me, this is 30 years later. And not only that, this is, you know, if you look at any classic hero's myth, that's actually worth its salt. At the beginning of the hero's journey with King Arthur, he pulls the sword from the stone. He's ascendant. He has setbacks, but he unites all the kingdoms, gets all his knights together, or Beowulf with him killing Grendel's mother, and then taking all down and having the victory and getting his own hall. There's always that first arc, but then if you keep reading, and if it goes pat, and if it then goes past that and deals with the hero's life as they get into middle age and beyond, it always starts to get into. You think about King Arthur, betrayed by his best friend and his wife, and then ultimately, depending on what version you read, coming up against somebody who has completely usurped his kingdom and the product of incest from him, and he has to kill him, but only at the cost of his own life. It gets into darker places. There's a reason for that. It's because myths are not made to sell action figures. Myths are made to reflect the most difficult transitions we go through in life. The early part of the hero's journey is reflecting, I think. It is my interpretation, going from adolescence into adulthood, where you're ascendant and you're finding yourself and you're winning. In order for something to address middle age and beyond in a really honest way, if you look at the myths like the Fisher King, it deals with disillusionment, starting to feel like you're losing your place in the world. It feels like everything changing and loss. And that's because they're honest and they have to be honest because that's what these things are there for. And this quote is particularly interesting. So it's the sole quote that I could find easily. That was from Ryan talking after the movie had come out. So obviously in those two previous quotes, that's from a movie, that's from an interview he gave to promote the movie. So he was being quite vague and generic in how he was talking. Whereas this interview is given in a very different context, a context where Ryan knows full well exactly how controversial his characterization of Luke was and he's really really making an effort to try and help people understand what he was going for with it. So yeah, what do you get from this one Lisa? Yeah well I, I think it's a it's a wonderful quote I'm glad you you found it and I, I remember this quote I think at the time the interview was done and I went looking for it and couldn't find it so I appreciate that you managed to pull it out. Um, <laughs> no worries. <laughs> the, the, the thing that you know it's interesting to me like I said I feel like you know this just sort of reiterates my opinion that you know he is making the story with the idea that Luke is to some degree a mythological figure that is, you know, uh, you know, a heightened, um, uh, a heightened example of what happens to everybody effectively. And, and I think the part in here that, you know, speaks to me is the stuff about, um, myths like the Fisher King and dealing with disillusionment. Um, because I, I think, and we'll talk about this later, right. But I think, to a large extent, not to be a huge downer to you younger folks or whatever, but but middle age is about coming to terms with disillusionment and regret and um, the sort of harder truths of life. Um, and, you know, I would say for me, going into seeing The Last Jedi, I, I actually, this was on my mind, these sorts of things. I mean, I'm not particularly familiar with Beowulf. Um, and only vaguely familiar with King Arthur, but, um, uh, and I think I mentioned this to you before that like, there's a, a fairy tale musical by Stephen Sondheim called Into the Woods that, um, sort of covers this and has two halves and has kind of a happy childish, 
um, first fairy tale first half, and then the second half is um, it's more about the older characters, and it's all about disillusionment and regret and guilt and obligation. And even before I saw The Last Jedi, that musical was sort of on my mind because you get tones of it coming out of Force Awakens, similar ideas with Han and Leia. And so I just sort of felt like uh, I just... I was I was listening to the soundtrack a lot and thinking, oh, this this would work really well. These the sentiments are the same as what I I feel is coming out of uh, the sequel trilogy for the older characters and stuff. So it's nice. I feel like I'm sort of somewhat in accord with his view on how to handle this kind of story. Not too surprisingly, given that you know I was excited about talking about it. So. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, it's a really great quote, and. Yeah, like we're, we're going to go into this a bit more, but I was so glad to see this Fisher King reference because that has been a struggle for me in preparing for this episode because the problem with the Fisher King myth, it's sort of wrapped up in this bigger myth of Parsifal and the Holy Grail and actually digging out the specific Fisher King story was something of a challenge for me. So I'm glad that Ryan like, yeah. zoned in on that very specifically. It's like, no, it's not possible i think that's funny just because i like we both were sort of talking about the fisher king stuff before this and it didn't even occur to me that you would narrow it on the parsifal stuff although i think you know i think the you referenced a book in your masculinity show that sort of dealt with this myth and you, you certainly can drag luke through the parsifal part of the um that story but um but for me like the 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 fact the the fact that you could identify luke as as sort of the disillusioned Fisher King or whatever seemed totally obvious, right? Like that's that sure. feels to yeah. me feels to me like my life. <laughs> <laughs> like it felt very very obvious when I was like, oh, yeah. so I basically wrote like acres of notes on the whole Percival thing. Um, but then when I realised I should have really been zeroing in on the Fisher King character specifically, I was like, oh bollocks, <laughs> it's really annoying. Yeah, well, you're a younger person. You sort of you know are drawn to the younger side of that story i think as an older sure, person i'm yeah. like i'm like oh yeah i'm an unhappy disillusioned morally injured um Aww. yeah it's okay it's fine <laughs> come to terms uh, with it but i clearly need to ask you the right question lisa <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah sorry that ties into the myth just to be clear that wasn't completely right <laughs> okay um, yeah, and then you gathered together some background of your own, Lisa. Would you like to talk through that a bit? Like, um, specifically, Ryan talking about the young stuff and the Robert Bly. Oh, yeah. So, I, you know, I had remembered that somebody had posted a quote about him. you uh, sort of leaning on Jung um, in writing the stuff. And I, I couldn't find any reference to this, except I actually eventually found this on your Tumblr. Rachel, which was a, which was hilarious that you're like the only <laughs> remaining source for this information because he because because Ryan deleted most of his tweets um, early on mm. in the whole uh, extreme Star Wars fame process, which was wise. Yeah. But we've lost some of the previous context of how he was thinking about things. So, so I think this was an ask on your Tumblr blog. And I don't mm -hmm, know correct. the person off the top of my head, but they said someone on Twitter asked Ryan Johnson if he read Hero with a Thousand Faces while prepping for episode eight. And he answered, no, but I reread some Jung and listened to a bunch of Robert Bly lectures. Close. 
The person then asked, anything in particular jump out of you, out at you from those two? To which Ryan responded, Modern Man in Search of a Soul is a good place to start for Jung, and Bly, a little book about the human shadow. And then I think, I think this is your editorializing that says, this seems interesting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think a couple of things to pull out from here, right? So I think a lot of people are familiar with the hero with the thousand faces. It often gets referenced in um, discussions of Star Wars because George Lucas, you know, was a fan of Joseph, Joseph Campbell. Mm-hmm. And Joseph Campbell wrote A Hero with a Thousand Faces, which sort of deals with commonalities of myths across cultures and time and um you know lucas was trying to write star wars as another one of these you know heroes with a thousand faces and so it gets referenced oftentimes in discussing that stuff um the the important thing to sort of recognize is that joseph campbell was himself sort of a you know a fan and a a student of a kind of Jung, Carl Jung. And so I think probably as we go into discussing things a little bit more, you know, I'm sort of interested a little bit in talking about the stuff that is sort of uh, Jungian about the the story. And Jung, to a large extent, sort of deals with um, questions of the psyche and the self and the, the idea that you have a greater self that you can only catch glimpses of through various means, through visions or dreams or stories or projections. Mm. And, um, and that part of the goal of life to some extent is to, you know, attain enlightenment to get a deeper understanding of reality and of yourself and i think that feeds in very well into what's going on with luke skywalker in the last jedi and so i'm interested in talking about that um Mm -hmm. and uh uh the the bly i can't really speak that much to i'm not as familiar with robert bly um but uh but i think you're a little bit familiar with bly is that right i am somewhat familiar with bly yeah um like and I did read some of his stuff like a while ago to talk about the Last Jedi, um, but I was very much reading that with a Ben Solo Ren focus. So when I was like quote mining Robert Bly basically because that's what I do, it was basically looking for stuff that resonated again with that younger generation and like adolescent male problems okay. basically. So quite different from the Luke stuff. I'm sure he probably does say say stuff that's highly relevant to Luke. But yeah, I didn't come across it, unfortunately. So that's the blind spot. Yeah, I think Bly tends to focus a lot on masculinity. And in this case, you know, I think what I'm interested in talking about is stuff that's more about um, the stuff that's fundamentally um, uh, about older people in general and not just about men or or the masculinity in everyone. Yeah, no, so it is like important to touch upon the whole Jungian foundation to Luke as a character because that was clearly at the forefront of Ryan's mind and I think it also ties in very much to all those mythological and folkloric underpinnings that he was talking about in the earlier interview from South by Southwest that we discussed because yeah like I'm far from a Jungian scholar <laughs> like the inverse of a Jungian scholar but my understanding is that Jung was really interested in like myth and symbols right and what they meant and how they reflected aspects of like the eternal human condition like is that vaguely accurate yeah well I would I would say I'm not an expert on Jung either but yeah I mean I I think the the main thing is that 
there's there's just this idea in Jung that you know you have a sort of conscious self and an unconscious self and and it's very hard to get a handle on that unconscious self and one way to do it is through um stories so i think Mm -hmm. i think for that reason jung and campbell show up a lot um as ideas in um screenwriting i think dan and i went to um la the beginning of the year there's a really nice um bookstore that's sort of a theatrical and filmmaking sort of focused bookstore and stuff and there was a whole shelf devoted to screenwriting that just contained a bunch of books on Jung and Campbell and I think it's uh, something that people lean into to try to find a way to um, lean into the structures that have gone before and tap into things that are successful and uh, meaningful for people Um, and so from that perspective those ideas show up a lot you know for their own sake so Mm -hmm. yeah they occur so often it's a bit ridiculous and highs and people use them with different levels of grace and skill um and yeah like i think we're both of the opinion that the last jedi utilizes them particularly well so yeah okay cool so now that we have those like underpinnings and the stuff that was going on in ryan's mind in relation to the movie out of the way let's move on to actually talk about what the film does with luke so we're going to try and get quite nitty gritty not like line by line with luke skywalker but we are going to talk about his journey in some detail um and yeah hopefully offer a fresh angle okay so with that background into like ryan johnson's thought processes and the influences he was drawing on for the movie covered um we will actually move on to the movie itself let's start off with where luke starts off in the movie so Ray goes to find him and she obviously has these grand ideas in her head about what Luke Skywalker is going to be like and what she's going to discover when she finds him and of course she offers him the lightsaber which he takes he considers and then he tosses it over his shoulder he doesn't want to know and it obviously quickly becomes apparent that he lives in this state of self-imposed exile and isolation and he's just unheeding of Ray's like begging him to return to help the resistance essentially so yeah there's obviously a lot going on in those early scenes with Luke and Ray and getting a handle on why he's there and what he's doing there and a lot of it takes the whole movie to unfurl basically but in terms of that impulse to seek out isolation and that retreat from the world and that apparent dereliction of duty like what's your read on that Lisa like how do you understand that like both you can be obviously be as personal as you like or talk more like about the mythic precedence for that and yeah just go wild <laughs> well I have, a, I have a lot to say about it um so I think one one thing to talk about is um I, from and I stated this a little bit earlier, but from my perspective, uh, the fact that he was in this sort of isolated state where he's sort of withdrawn from the world um, and the set of you know complex and very negative emotions he has was not at all surprising, um, largely uh, because of the way uh, the Force Awakens is structured, right? So in the Force Awakens, you have several heroes, right? You have Finn, Rey, and Han. 
and mm-hmm. they all um, go through a very similar arc where they're all um, uh, running away from their responsibilities. Basically, they're all mm-hmm. afraid and they all run away. Um, and they need to sort of overcome their fear and engage with the fight. And, um, and they all do that through the love for, of somebody else. And um, in, you know, like in Han's case, he's running away from his responsibility towards his son and his family. And he comes back for Leia. And Finn, you know, wants to, you know, says he wants to run away from the First Order. We all need to run. That shows up when they sit down and talk to Maz. Maz says he has the eyes of a man who wants to run. Um, but he comes back into the fight to save Ray when Ray is kidnapped. And then likewise, um, Ray is sort of presented with her responsibilities with the saber. Uh, and she literally runs from that uh, out of fear and really sort of only comes back I would say when like Finn is struck down and then she sort of takes up the, the saber and takes up the, um, the fight and the force, uh, for Finn effectively. And so, uh, and I remember watching that movie and thinking, Oh, well there's somebody else who seems to have abandoned the, their responsibilities to the fight. Right. And that yeah. clearly was Luke. And mm-hmm. so I perfectly expected Luke to have done this sort of abandoned his, his duty out of fear fear in one form or another and that he would come back for uh for love and i figured it'd be love of somebody close to him and i figured it would be leia so yeah so from that perspective i think it sort of fit in really well with the themes of uh the force awakens yeah that's a really great observation actually because um i remember so much discourse after the force awakens came out so obviously it presented everyone with this cliffhanger, literal cliffhanger of Luke on the edge of a cliff and Ray clearly imploring him to help. And yeah, there were so many different theories and competing interpretations about what he would be doing there. And I feel like it was so common for people to believe that he was there for some sort of like urgent quest and it was all with like a clear sense of purpose and that he was still fully himself. You know, so it is really interesting to think of it in terms of he's in the same place at the start of The Last Jedi that characters like Rey and Finn and Han are in the early stages of The Force Awakens where he's kind of floundering and he's trying to find something to fight for and a reason to get engaged in the fight again. Yeah, totally. So I think that's one aspect of him being sort of withdrawn, right? Um I think for me, there's another aspect which is which sort of targets this idea that we're going for, which is that um, it's sort of a part of a natural state of life at, at sort of your midlife. At this point, you know, I think we, <laughs> I can lean into the personal a little bit, right? I think, um, you know, as an older person, I think one of the things that, and I don't think this is just me, but, you know, I have to speak from my personal experience. Um, I think it's, it's fairly common to have um, sort of a crisis of confidence in midlife, right? Because, mm. you know, at the beginning of your life, you're sort of going through that fairy tale adolescent transition where uh, we, we tell you this story in the fairy tales, which is that um, yeah, it's going to be tough and there's going to be big battles to fight and you're going to have to go out and do these things. Uh, but you're going to triumph, you're going to be heroic, and you're going to win at the end, and you're going to live happily ever after. And and, and I, I think that's sort of a necessary story to tell young people, because if you didn't, they wouldn't step into life at all. 
because life is scary, right? We need them to step up, step away from being cared for and to be actors in the world. And so um, that's what that myth is all about, right? Yeah. But I think, you know, you go out into life and you, you find a place and you're, you're brave and you, you take a, a role and you become a parent or you, you become a mentor. Um, and, uh, and then I think you, you quickly find that life is way more um, complicated than you might have imagined, right? That um, I think when you're a younger person, you, you look to the older people in your lives and think, well, they, they've got it all figured out. <laughs> they know what they're doing. Um, and they're responsible for everything to make sure everything goes well. And if they fail, you tend to sort of, uh, you know, blame them. Um, and then when you get to, to actual midlife, you go, oh, wait a second, I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> things are not that clear. The path is not laid out as, as clearly as you would hope. Um, no matter what you do, uh, to, some, mm-hmm. so, to some degree, you face failure one way or the other. And I think, um, and, and, you know, interestingly, Luke really made me think about this a lot. Like, the, to some degree, the more successful you are, I think, in life, the more responsibilities are placed on you, the wider the set of roles that you play, the more mm. you have the opportunity to um, feel like you're not meeting those responsibilities. And, um, you know, I, I feel a little bad for saying this so often these days, but I, I tend to feel in my current life um, like a continual failure. Um, mm. And uh, and I don't mean to say that in, you know, a particularly pitiful way. I don't think... I don't think I am a failure in an abstract sense, uh, in a larger sense, right? Like I, I'm a reasonably successful person, but as as a person with a lot of responsibilities, I'm, at midlife, you know, you're sort of trapped between caring for your children and caring for your parents and working, you know, jobs of uh, or other roles of real responsibility, and they're just too many things to do and too much attention that needs to be paid to too many places. There's just no way uh, to spread yourself out across everything that you could possibly need to do. So that's part of how you end up feeling like a failure, I think. But also, um, there's a whole bunch of stuff about parenthood that I think we'll get to a little bit later that Mm. um, tends to make you feel like a failure because you can't, uh, you, you, you desperately want everything to go, you know, well for your children and you can't guarantee that a lot of times sure. a lot of times yeah. you can't guarantee that precisely because you're their parent <laughs> yes and then also i think there's a thing that i think sort of shows up in luke's story which is almost any act you have has negative repercussions like you you make this choice and at the very least if you make this choice to do that you you don't make this other choice to do the other thing and so there's mm. it's very hard to lead a life of um pure good action Right, like your yeah. your everything you do has a cost, and um, coming to terms with that fact that you if you're if you're a good conscientious kind-hearted person that um, you can't lead a perfectly good life is um, it's 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 something that you have to come to terms with as an adult, and yeah. um, so for me I see in Luke's story a lot a lot of that right at this mythic level he's at this heightened level of being like the most responsible person, right? Like the most important person, the most good person. When, when you're at that level, you feel responsible for everything and everyone. And so there's just no way to make sure that no harm comes to anyone, right? And there's no way to make sure that every action that you take uh, is absolutely devoid of uh, a negative repercussions. And, um, and I think there's just no way to 
be to some degree to be purely good, right? To be absolutely and completely morally good. There's always an argument. Yeah. There's always a criticism. I mean, I like I have a a job that's fairly complicated involves working with a large number of people and being responsible for a number of people and you know over the past few years I've you know tried very hard to do the right actions and do the best thing for everyone and I know there are people who feel that you know I did the wrong thing and stuff it's sort of the Mm. you know it's the burden of being like the king right like if you if you're the king and to some extent, Luke is the king in this. There's there's always going to be somebody who considers you to have done wrong. Yeah. So, so I think, I mean, I think this feeds in a little bit into this idea, like we were sort of talking a little bit about um, the Fisher King myth or story in relationship to Luke. And I, I think you guys talked about this a little bit in your masculinity show. Yeah. Do you want to explain really quickly sort of the outline of the Fisher King story, Rachel? Yeah, no, sure. Um, So this is going to be a bit fumbly because I didn't actually prepare anything. And again, it's because you can't go onto Wikipedia and find a neat synopsis of the Fisher King legend because it's all about bloody Parsifal and he gets in the way and it's very annoying. But basically the idea of the Fisher King legend is that there's a young knight and he's off questing on some sort of adventure as knights are want to do and he gets this terrible wound and apparently there's different iterations of it and in some like myths it's in the groin area and other places it's in the leg but the idea is that it's in the part of his being that is generative that is responsible for creation obviously in both literal and non-literal sense um and so he is like carted off to like a castle which eventually becomes the grail castle and it's this splendid place where there's all these marvelous processions involving this various paraphernalia that's associated with christ like the um crown of thorns and obviously the grail because it'd be a disappointing grail castle if there wasn't a grail um and basically even though he's surrounded by all this splendor and all this glory the fisher king cannot partake in any of it and he it doesn't give him any joy and his only respite from the agony that he's suffering comes from the act of fishing thus he is the fisher king and eventually this young knight called parsifal who's the cause of all my problems um he shows up to the grail castle and he's told that he needs to ask the right question to the fisher king and that if he asks the right question the fisher king will be healed and the first time parsifal comes to the grail castle he screws it up and he doesn't know what to say and so nothing's fixed and he like wanders off and does like 20 years of knightly quests and stuff and then eventually when he's a much older and more seasoned person who's been through a lot, Parsifal comes back and he's finally able to ask the right question to the Fisher King. And the right question is who does the Grail serve? And he doesn't need to give the answer, he just needs to ask the right question. And as soon as he asks that question, the Fisher King is healed and all is well. And there's lots of important symbolic and metaphorical stuff going on as well. So the Fisher King also embodies his kingdom. And so while the Fisher King is alien, the kingdom is also alien. Which is obvious parallels to Luke. Because while Luke is in exile and while Luke is separate from everything, the galaxy at large is in a state of chaos and ruin. So yeah, there's lots and lots of intertwining 
basically between the myth and how Luke is handled. Did I do a decent stab at that, Lisa? Oh yeah, I think that was great. Um, I mean, I think I think with a lo- like a lot of these kinds of stories, there are multiple versions of uh, the Fisher King. So, um, but from my perspective, the stuff that I think is sort of relevant and useful in that story, right, are that one, the Fisher King is injured and in some versions of the story that's very definitely portrayed as a moral injury of a kind like there's some implications that it's related to chastity or something right and so right. there's this idea that he has a moral injury which you definitely can see in Luke right Luke feels morally injured right that's why he's withdrawn um, yeah and then there's sort of the idea of you know withdrawing to sort of a magical place right which is what Luke's done he's withdrawn to this magical island and uh, at that magical island, uh, the king is sort of, to some degree, abdicated his responsibilities or is unable to fulfill his responsibilities. That portion that you sort of mentioned about the, ki- the welfare of the king and the kingdom being intertwined um, sort of shows up here, right? And so Luke's not doing what he needs to do to serve the galaxy because of this moral injury and uh, the the galaxy suffers because of it, and instead he you know withdraws and does sort of a mundane you know task that does not seem befitting of a king, which is like you know fishing, and you get that in the movie, right? Like he he's Ray follows him around the island, and he's doing he should be doing the things that he needs to do to help the galaxy, but instead he's doing these sort of mundane tasks, which include you know like literally fishing on Octu. Um, and then I think there's that sort of state of being caught between life and death, right? That he, um, the Fisher King is sort of, has a wound that won't kill him, but it's not letting him live his life or be his, do his duty either, right? And so Luke, to me, feels very much caught between life and death. Like he's not an active player in life and he wants yeah. to die, but he can't bring himself to die. Um, and so that feels very close to that particular myth. And then, you know, the final piece is that the correction or salvation has to come from, um, you know, this sort of uh, youth, right? A, you know, a youth uh, comes and, and arrives and sort of brings some sort of solution to his problems and stuff. So that stuff tracks fairly well to me, and and that's the part of that story that feels to me a little bit resonant with being an older adult, the idea of that you have a kind of moral or spiritual injury from dealing with the world that makes you want to withdraw, that makes you want to, you know, step away from life and, and, um, you know, like I said, you have sort of a crisis of courage in the midlife a lot of times, and I have like a... Um, a quote from Jung that I wanted to read on this. And do you mind if I take a crack? Yeah, at no, sure. Go for it. So Jung writes about this stage of life. And he says, uh, just as the childish person shrinks back from the unknown in the world and in human existence, so the grown man shrinks back from the second half of his life. It is as if unknown and dangerous tasks awaited him, or as if he were threatened with sacrifices and losses he does not wish to accept. Or as if his life up to now seemed to him so fair and precious that he could not relinquish it. Is it perhaps at bottom the fear of death? That does not seem to me very probable because as a rule death is still far in the distance and therefore somewhat abstract. Uh, Experience shows us rather that the basic cause of all the difficulties of this transition is to be found in a deep-seated and peculiar change within the psyche. In order to characterize it I must make a comparison to the daily course of the sun. 
but a sun that is endowed with human feeling and with man's limited consciousness. At the stroke of noon, the descent begins, and the descent means the reversal of all the ideals and values that were cherished in the morning. The sun falls into contradiction with itself. And so that feels to me very much like where Luke is, right? The whole idea of um, falling into contradiction to the values that you held dear. Um, and I, th I think that's what's going on. Do you have any particular thoughts about it, uh, Rachel? I, I think he makes a really good point specifically about um, that whole idea of being like afraid to face up to what's to come in that second half of life. Because yeah, I, I think that's exactly what you see with Luke. Because he's there in this sort of limbo state, isn't he? Because he, he it's not like he wants to die. If he actually wanted to end his life, he could have done that like anywhere you know he didn't need to go to act two to do that so he clearly has some sort of impulse or desire to continue being by being on act two but he has yet to find that sort of sense of purpose and direction so yeah and i think that's obviously what the whole ray part of the story brings to him it sort of initiates that next part of his journey and makes it possible yep yeah, and also just related to this, I think it's just worth briefly mentioning that the choice in the setting of Act 2 in Skellig Michael is also really significant because obviously Skellig Michael was an ancient monastery for very early Christians in Ireland. And yeah, like I think it appeals to those same like qualities that we've been talking about, that sense of like monasticism, which is obviously a very very literal withdrawal from the world but because we're talking in terms of myth and everything being heightened and exaggerated i think that idea of, of luke journeying back to that monastic type of existence it makes a lot of sense and also makes sense just within the internal logic of the film and in the internal history of the jedi and everything because yeah like the jedi were basically space monks so luke is seeking out the origin of the Jedi and the root of all things and yeah like I think a, a former Christian settlement in a remote island the most remote island you could possibly find basically it makes perfect sense and it's such a great choice do you have any thoughts specifically Lisa on what would have compelled Luke to go back and seek out that origin of the Jedi in relation to all this stuff that we've been discussing about the challenges that are thrown at you in that second half of life and all the crises of like confidence and like self-belief and everything that you go through in that stage like trying to intertwine that with this like inner logic of the film where he's saying like I had to come back to seek the root of the Jedi like how do you conceptualize that um well, I think, you know, what it feels like to me is, you know, t leading off from your um, observation about Skellig Michael being sort of a, you know, a Christian site for sort of Christian monastery slash hermit place, um, the, 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 that aspect of him returning there seems to be about rethinking uh, having that sort of a crisis of confidence in his religion to some extent. There's a whole aspect of, yeah. of the movie that feels like people who are revisiting uh, the root of their original religious belief and trying to figure out if it needs to be discarded or if it can be reformed. Yeah. 
uh, I'm not a super religious person, so that doesn't necessarily connect really deeply with me, but I think that's an interesting aspect of the film. Yeah. No, I think you really nailed it, actually. Like, I think that is what's going on with that. And yeah, it's interesting. Like, I'm not really religious either, but I find religion really interesting as a topic. And it almost makes me think of the whole break with um, Catholicism and Protestantism in the, like, Reformation, like the 16th century. Um, And that whole idea that the church had become corrupt and entitled and had built up all these, like, lavish rituals and... Like, it had become arrogant, basically. That was how some people perceived the Catholic Church in the middle of the last millennium, basically. And the a big part of the root of Protestantism was to get to the real core of Christianity, is in the Bible, and to strip away everything else. So just to return to those pure roots and to try and figure out, okay, this is actually what the religion is. All the other stuff is bunk and we can chuck it out. And I'm not saying anything in terms of personal belief when I say that and saying that this is how these different like aspects of Christianity perceived each other and yeah like there's definitely an element of that in terms of seeking out the pure version of the belief system and is not really explored in any depth like I remember at the time some people were pissed off because they obviously saw the books and the trailer for the movie like oh my god we're going to find out what's inside the Jedi texts and we're going to find out all this law and there is zero law so the point isn't actually the theology of what Luke discovers about the roots of the Jedi Order and what the fundamentals of the Jedi Order were that's sort of not the point but I do think it works as another layer of metaphor for Luke trying to like look inward and trying to like wrestle with who he is and to get to the core of his own being. Yeah, I think um to a large extent you're right the 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 idea of him wrestling with, you know, the religion of the Jedi is to a large extent about him wrestling with himself. He'll later like, we'll go over this later, but you know when he describes sort of the failures of the Jedi, there's sort of a magnified version of what he considers the failures of himself. And so that's mm. kind of why that stuff is there. Yeah. So obviously in the course of the movie we have several really fascinating conversations between Luke and Ray where yeah, Luke is basically forced to explain and rationalize his decisions and his thought processes. Um which is really like quite fascinating to witness. Yeah, so obviously Luke, in the course of the movie, he gives Ray two lessons. Because it's not quite as relevant to Luke's personal journey and evolution, we're kind of going to skip over the first one. We're just going to talk a bit about the second. And I will just read out how Luke explains things, basically, in terms of what he saw as his fault, and indeed the fault of the Jedi. So, Luke... Now that they're extinct, the Jedi are romanticised, deified, but if you strip away the myth and look at their deeds, the legacy of the Jedi is failure, hypocrisy, hubris. Ray, that's not true. Luke, at the height of their powers, they allowed Darth Sidious to rise, create the Empire and wipe them out. It was a Jedi Master who was responsible for the training and creation of Darth Vader. Ray, and a Jedi who saved him. Yes, the most hated man in the galaxy. But you saw that there was conflict inside him. You believed that he wasn't gone, that he could be turned. Luke, and I became a legend. For many years, there was balance. And then I saw Ben, my nephew, 
with that mighty Skywalker blood, and in my hubris I thought I could train him, I could pass on my strengths. Han was Han about it, but Leia trusted me with her son. I took him and a dozen students and began a training temple. By the time I realised I was no match for the darkness rising in him, it was too late. Ray, what happened? Luke, I went to confront him, and he turned on me. He must have thought I was dead. When I came to, the temple was burning. He had vanished with a handful of my students, and slaughtered the rest. Leia blamed Snoke, but it was me. I failed, because I was Luke Skywalker, Jedi Master, a legend, Ray. The galaxy may need a legend. I need someone to show me my place in all this. And you didn't fail, Kylo. Kyle failed you. I won't. Okay, so there is an awful lot to go in on there. And yeah, I will hand the table to you a minute, Lisa, so you can start unpacking that to some extent in terms of how Luke is explaining in him himself and what this tells us about Luke's mindset, essentially. Uh, well, so I, I think for me, the interesting thing about that quote is how much he um, uh, parallels the the fall of the Jedi based in hubris to his own fall, effectively, where he sort of says, you know, in my hubris, I thought I could train him. And I, I'm interested in that portion, both because it, you know, it, it, it ties those two things together, but also sort of underlines what he considers his his real failure to be and I, I will say this that i see a lot of um discussions about luke is a failure online and luke's fault and and you know there's a lot of people who are upset about luke, the handling of luke in this movie uh and i i get it because it's we we really put luke through the paces in this movie um uh, but i think a lot of times when i see people talk about his failure they sort of talk about his failure as being that moment that he lights his his saber right and threatens ben or people talk about his failure being after that moment when he doesn't go off to fight ben or he doesn't come into the fight for his friends and his family um Mm. but i think what this quote says to me is that he considers his failure to be a deeper one right it's not any individual act it's really his whole attitude right that he considers his failure his hubris it's the Identi- that he becomes feels like he's over identified himself as um, the this perfect hero, right? And he r- recognizes that he isn't this perfect hero, and yeah. that's really the failure. It's not these individual acts that are problematic. Because, like I said, from my perspective as an older person, you're you're, you're always going to have things that are going to go wrong. They're going to have th- things that people can blame you for. But the thing that is important, I think, at this stage of life and the thing that you sort of have to get over is this over identification with your persona which is a term that Jung uses right that we take on persona which are sort of like these masks that we present to other people I didn't find a good quote on this although I've I know I've certainly read this idea in Jung um, but Jung has sort of this idea that like one of the stages for for middle life and later life is to um, come to terms with the fact that your 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 true self is larger than uh, these roles that you take on, right? That you have that uh, you're you're bigger than that, and I th- I feel like that's what Luke is struggling with here, right? Like he has uh, a role, a persona, a set of expectations that people have for him, and 
um, he's struggling to reconcile that with his true self. And that's the painful transition that he needs to go through. And I think it's the painful transition every um, person needs to go through sort of at that stage in their life. Yeah. So I think it's something of the lie that things like fairy tales tell us because they tell us and they all lived happily ever after which suggests that once you reach your happy ending which is usually when you're still like at quite a young point in life you know it's like the prince and the princess got married or the cobbler's son like made a great fortune and was rich forevermore you know, like it's about young people and sort of like end point is, I don't know, when a character is 21 years old or something. Um, and yeah, there's very little serious engagement with or wrestling with what actually comes next, which again is something that Into the Woods does really well because I wasn't that familiar with it before. But at Lisa's suggestion, I went and watched it for the podcast. It was very good. And yeah, with Luke, I think is quite fascinating because we as an actual real life audience not people inside the galaxy far far away we all have those same expectations of Luke that Luke had of himself which ties back to the quote that Ryan gave where he was talking about having to draw that into his conceptualization of the character and figure out how he was going to write about it given that And yeah, I think he does something so clever in acknowledging that it's just an impossible standard to live up to when you are this hero who redeemed this great monster and when you essentially save the galaxy from great peril and almost is this like singular, iconic, heroic figure. And particularly in that case from the meta level, because Luke is like seen as the hero of stars you know obviously leia and han they're also heroic but they're not central in the way that luke is central and yeah like you just see luke in the last jedi struggling with that image of himself and it makes me so so curious to see the stories about what he was like just after return of the jedi when he was operating under that like almost swollen image of himself is this like great hero who was capable of anything and could achieve anything because I'm sure then there must have been this gradual process of erosion where all these doubts crept in and he kept on having these setbacks and realizing oh crap I can't just do this I I'm struggling still you know because you're ultimately still human and you're still flawed and you're not this perfectly capable person despite how people might perceive you absolutely it's like I think back to when I was a kid and I was a particularly naive kid, you know, but I looked at all adults like basically as these like deities, you know, like I considered them completely infallible like beings who were always correct and knew everything pretty much. You know, I was a very trusting child and it's only when you become an adult yourself that you appreciate that, yeah. No, you can expect people of that and no one's perfect and I'm sure a lot of the adults who told me things when I was a child they were telling me complete nonsense um, and yeah it's just fascinating how your perspective evolves over the course of your life yeah I, I, I don't think your perspective is a unique one I think all, all children pretty much think that they're initially think their parents yeah are these uh, almost supernatural creatures who can do everything and know everything and um, 
and then you yeah you just go through life uh slowly getting disabused of that and then at some point you reach sort of a crisis state like luke has and then you're like no this is too much i need to i want i'm ready to run away (laughs) yeah like what do you make of that dynamic that he has with ray going on where ray is basically like repeating to him that whole myth of himself and making the point that it was a jedi who saved him for example, you know, and like trying desperately to remind him of what he achieved and bring that back to him because he seems completely unmoved by it in the moment, even though she's so sincere and like her trust is so absolute. And yeah, I guess it shows the limitations. I guess he's been so broken by what he's experienced that it kind of rings false to him. Is that how you read it? Oh, absolutely. I Like it's his his reaction is not surprising at all to me right like to for her like she's trying to inspire him right but if to bring that stuff back to him just just grinds in the pain you know more to him i think it's just it just re-emphasizes everything that's causing him grief right Mm. it's reopening this idea that he's a he's a great hero and he did a heroic thing in the past. So he should be able to come back and, and set everything right again. And he knows that that's uh, one, not always the case that he's going to be able to do that. And two, it, it, it reinforces the idea that everybody's expecting that of him. Um, And so, yeah, no, it just touches all the raw open nerves that he has. I, I would be interesting to go back and look at it again. I think Ryan, one thing I really love about the film is how good the blocking is in the film. So the way that he sort of places the characters in relationship to each other is really sort of yeah. very thoughtfully done. Um, and it might be the, at least it's the strongest element that stood out to me in the film. And there's a whole aspect between uh, Luke and Ray throughout their interactions that sort of covers this. And a lot of it has to do, and it's something to watch out for, um, when they turn their backs on each other and stuff. And so, you know, I would, I probably during that speech, I can't quite remember. He probably turns his back on her to some degree. Right. Mm, Um, and he, he's frequently turning his back to her and, uh, there are reasons why he's doing that usually in scenes where he's doing that. And then that has a, you know, an effect, you know, a gradual effect on Ray too, right? Like it sort of wears on Ray until at the final, the final scene where he turns away from her. You remember when he leaves the hut and he says, you leave yeah. this place and he turns away and she knocks him over. She hits him from behind. And I'm like, when <laughs> I saw that, I was like, yeah, I would want to hit him too. Like he's done that over and over <laughs> and over to her. He's turned away from her. Yeah. Uh, but I understand why he's doing it. She's, she thinks she's inspiring him because she's coming from the perspective of a younger person. But uh, and those are the things that a younger person would be inspired by. But for him, it's something that just is, you know, all the more painful. No, it's so interesting um, that whole relationship. Like she like craves like this teacher, this mental figure, and Luke does try to fulfill that to some extent. But he does it in a very curious way, where he's absolutely not the sort of teacher slash mentor that she envisaged for herself, and yeah to a large part Luke's teaching it's essentially him saying what his limitations are and why he's incapable of teaching her the lessons that she wants to know and at the time that obviously just causes Ray frustration and makes her feel like ignored and powerless and yeah like it pushes her away and it obviously pushes her towards Kylo Ren 
um, which is a whole separate conversation. But I think that's a necessary process that she needs to be like taught to go and find other sources of guidance and has to go and find her own way to some extent. Absolutely. I think that's what he's trying to do, right? He's trying to connect her to fundamental truths. That's that's the, the lesson about, you know, the forces doesn't belong to the Jedi, right? So he, yeah. he says, you know, you have what you need to know and you need to go out into the world and take it and take action, you know, in that way. And so... And that's that is the path of sort of the younger hero too, and so it it makes some sense that he's sort of driving her to that. But she, he is kind of denying her a little bit of the, you know, mentor handholding stuff that she was expecting. Um, but at the end of the day, every young hero has to even sort of step out from their mentors and turn away from them. Luke Luke did right. Luke didn't listen to Obi Wan and Yoda, and he went out and did the right thing. And she needs to do the same. So, on the one hand, I don't think it's too terrible but um but yeah it's it's an interesting set of relationships yeah um so to backpedal slightly i'd just like to talk a bit about what's going on with luke and leia because we obviously don't get a lot between them but um the two scenes we get between them before they actually reunite properly on crates there's the scene with Luke on the Falcon where he looks at the holographic image of Leia that's obviously from the original Star Wars as she was pleading with like anyone basically to come and help her cause um, because it was looking so desperate blah 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 and Luke obviously watches that image and he's filled with sadness and well an assortment of other melancholy emotions one presumes and then the next moment is just before the scene with the hut explosion and all the drama that ensues where Luke actually reconnects to the force and he senses Leia again and I wanted to talk about this a bit and I'm going to throw an idea out there that I think you disagree with because you said you disagreed with it in the notes (laughs) Um, which is that like from my reading of it like from like a quasi like ignoramus Jungian analyst point of view um and like looking at the mythic perspective as well from my like reading of lots of different short Robert Johnson books in the last few weeks um there seems to be this whole implication with Luke separating himself from Leia specifically that he's perhaps cutting himself off from like the more feminine aspect of himself um, and I know that this is a discussion more of a character at a certain stage in life rather than a character as a man. Um, but yeah, like I just find that dynamic between Luke and Leia so interesting. And I wanted to talk a bit about how that's treated in The Last Jedi and how that interacts with what came before for those characters. So yeah, that was a splurge, but please go ahead and talk. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I mean, I don't have any objection to the idea of um, that there's sort of a reconnection with uh, the feminine in that scene. I think that's fine. Mm. Um, you know, I think I only uh, brought up some concerns about it just because I, I'm i interested in focusing more on sort of the universal aspects of um, – that I think are true for older characters across the board. Although I know Jung will talk a lot, actually, if you actually read Jung, Jung talks a lot about the later stages of life actually being 
a time in which we, okay, so maybe you're right, Rachel. Um, I, thinking back <laughs> on what I've read in the last couple of weeks, I think Jung, sure. Jung does talk a lot about how uh, the second half of our life, particularly in old age, we often, um, there's sort of a smoothing out of people to some extent. This is, you know, this is my own not very articulate explanation of what I think Jung said, but um, mm -hmm. that, you know, men become more feminine and women become more masculine. We, we, um, you could argue to some extent we become more whole in a way and that that is actually yeah. a common part of growing older. And you kind of see that, yeah. like if you, like think of your grandparents or stuff. I mean, I think this is a little bit hard to recognize this if you're a younger person because you haven't seen the sweep of a human life yet. But it, mm. it is generally true that, um, and and part of it is that probably that when people are younger, they take on particular roles and persona that are often very tied to either masculinity or femininity. And then when they've, they're released from those roles at the end of life, they can sort of be released from some of the um, constraints around expectations of their relationship to femininity and masculinity. But I do, I do think that that is um, something that Jung in particular talks about. So I, I wouldn't say that it's a terrible idea. It's just, it's just not the idea I was interested in talking about. But yes, I think that, I think that's a good observation, actually. Yeah. No, like I, I know what you mean. Like I think in terms of tying it in more into that like discussion about like as you get older and you're more qualified to talk about this than me so tell me if I'm just talking shit like I would kind of see it almost as Luke is like trying to negotiate like a new way of being like a new identity for himself like, on act two that's what all this like stuff is about essentially like going and trying to investigate these Jedi texts and the origins of everything he's trying to get to the core of the meaning of everything but in doing that he also kind of he doesn't forget because it's not like he forgets Leia and Han and everything they're always in his mind but he distances himself from what are actually quite crucial fundamental aspects of his identity and that includes his relationship with Leia his sister he puts that on ice basically and he chooses to believe that he has noble reasons for doing that and that there's like good reasoning behind his going away because he really feels like he'd do more harm than good if he stayed wrapped up in galactic affairs but I think you really see over the course of the film in those few brief moments that do explore the Luke and Leia relationship that he's really tortured by that separation and that he's diminished by it and I think that's why that scene that comes at the end of the film where Luke and Leia are reunited is so important, it is about becoming whole again to an extent and about embracing those aspects of yourself that you had pushed away. I think that's really well stated, actually. I mean, his cutting off of the force feels like it's absolutely intended to cut off, cut himself off from Leia, right? Um, mm. And I think you're right about that he does tell himself a story that he thinks that it's too dangerous or problematic for him to be in the world. It's not going to help. And so uh, he can't be in the world. So he needs to you know, be brave in a way and cut himself off. I think, I think he cuts himself off. And this shows up, I think, when people complain about this character a lot, that they're like, how would he do that? What, you know, that's not the Luke we know. But I think the fact that he cuts himself off entirely sort of emphasizes that it's the same Luke we've always known, that he knows that if he's in close contact with 
his friends and his family, he, he won't be able to stay out of the fight. And he, he wants to, he thinks it's the right thing to do. And so he, he cuts off that connection, even though it's incredibly painful for him to do that because the temptation is too strong if, it, if the connection is there. And so you're right. It's kind of a, um, a healing at the end to, um, come back to his whole self, right? Like he, when he, when he cuts off his relationship to Leia, he's cutting off his relationship to a certain aspect of himself, a certain role that he has, a certain relationship to the world and uh, reconnecting that sort of fills him in in a way that he needs before he reaches the end of the story. Yeah. You actually have a great quote from Casino Royale about Mathis giving Bond advice. I think ties him really well to this. Yes. Yeah, so, oddly, I think when I was trying to drop notes for the show, I went, I actually was looking for, I think the, some of the quotes that you found elsewhere, but I, I was uh, snooping his Instagram account amongst other things. So yeah, it was for the, the Instagram was from March 7th, 2017. And it's a shot of this title page, chapter 20, the nature of evil. Um, and it's got a photo behind it. I haven't figured out what the photo is, but the I didn't take much sleuthing to figure out that this chapter is from uh, Casino Royale. And I was like, oh, that's cool, right? Because like, there's a casino in the movie, and I was like, how is this related? So I went and got myself a copy of Casino Royale. And Casino Royale was the first um, Ian Fleming book about James Bond, so I thought that was kind of cool. I had never read it before. And this particular chapter is about Bond having second thoughts about uh, being out in the world and, and whether you can actually do good or not. And, you know, what does it mean to uh, be good and what does it mean to be evil? And so in the, in the story, he is just, um, he's in the hospital having had a confrontation with the villain whose name is Le Chifre, and he's talking to his colleague and he's talking about being disillusioned and he says um before Le Chiffre began he used a phrase which stuck in my mind playing red indians he said that's what i've been doing well i suddenly thought he might be right and i don't know how how well younger people know this but the idea of uh, cowboys and indians is a game you know that kids used to play in the 50s right where you'd have good guys mm -hmm. and bad guys and the indians were considered the bad guys in the 1950s it's not politically correct anymore, but I th the implication is that he's talking about uh, that the villain has told him that he's, you know, playing a false game, that there are good guys and bad guys. And he says, uh, you see, when one's young, it seems very easy to distinguish between right and wrong. But as one gets older, it becomes more difficult. At school, it's easy to pick out one's own villains and heroes, and one grows up wanting to be a hero and kill the villains. Villains. Now, that's all very fine. The hero kills two villains, but when the hero, the Shifra, starts to kill the villain Bond, and the villain Bond knows he isn't a villain at all, you see the other side of the medal. The villains and the heroes all get mixed up. And he goes on mm -hmm. at length about God and the devil, and it's all very interesting. I would encourage people to go get a copy of the book and read it. But at the, at the end of this exchange, uh, his colleague gives him some advice. And his, his colleague says, when you fall in love and have a mistress or a wife and children to look after, it will, all it will seem all the easier. Surround yourself with human beings, my dear James. They are easier to fight for than principles. And I think that idea shows up repeatedly in this uh, movie. Like it shows, it, it shows up in Finn's story as well, obviously. But I think you correctly are sort of bringing it up because it sort of ties into this um, 
relationship with Leia. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's like one of the lessons that Luke goes through that realize, realizing that he was like, it was, it's like a weird thing because he was right to abandon everything and go to the islands. He needed to discover these things and he probably wouldn't have discovered them if he didn't allow himself that time for introspection and yeah like in psychological terms to make the unconscious conscious for himself so he needed to have that experience it was critical in that way but through that experience of isolation he also realizes that he probably should never have left (laughs) because all these people that he loved need him and he can be useful and he can do something for them and yeah it's about finding the right balance i guess behind between giving yourself that time for introspection and like consciousness and also being available to others and being able to like make a tangible difference yeah i mean i th- i think again this goes to what all people need to go through right like you at midlife you get a little beat up you have a lot of regrets um you feel guilty about a lot of stuff it makes you want to withdraw and then and you're like, I can't do anything right. Why should I even try? Maybe I should just, you know, get out of the game. And then you have to figure out how to, um, how to come back in. And, um, it's hard, right? You have to figure out, you ha- you still have to engage. And, um, I think, I think the thing that he sort of comes to terms with is that you have to recognize that even though you're, the chances are that you might not fail or you might not succeed or, there may be repercussions to your actions. It doesn't you absolve you of the responsibility of trying and the responsibility yeah. of, from my, from my perspective, the responsibility of expressing your love for others by making, making that effort. Um, yeah. And I think that's what he comes to terms with. I think the end of the movie is, a, is really as much as anything, an attempt to be an expression of love as anything else. And so, and that sort of yeah. ties into this, quote in particular that if you have people you love that's the thing that can sort of pull you through this transition and and um and which and again this ties back into the original themes of uh, the force awakens right that it's um it's our love for others that um draws us back into the fight and and prepares us for it and girds and protects us through it so yeah exactly um yeah so to keep us moving along I would like to talk a bit about Luke's whole attitude towards like Ray and Kylo specifically, because that's obviously like a critical aspect of him. And like I think you'll probably be able to help me understand this much more. So it's always been fascinating to me, and that, and I do obviously understand it to an extent. But I just think there's a lot of rich stuff going on that I don't quite have a handle on, and I think you can probably have some good insights. Um, because it's specifically how afraid of them he seems sometimes like in the scene where Ray demonstrates that intuitive like profound connection to the force for example and Luke obviously identifies that with this power that Ben Solo had and like he makes the comparison by saying how when he saw it in Ben he like just admired the great power and he saw that as something to be shaped and molded but with Ray, because of how he saw things go with Ben, he's terrified of it with Ray and he doesn't want anything to do with it. And then later on, you get the scene where obviously he realizes that they have that connection 
and that they've been having this secret communication without him and he goes like full-on patriarch mode and just goes apeshit essentially and like i can talk about this more eloquently but i would like to pass the ball to you basically to try and elucidate what's going on with luke in terms of his interactions and reactions to those characters and specifically this idea of how he reacts to their power and the fact that to an extent they're reenacting these dramas that he went through when he was a young person sure um you know i mean i think there are two aspects to to that fear right and i think one aspect i can't really address from luke's perspective very well which is i think a very much a um a male fear of of feminine power and you know wanting to control and protect and uh also sort of fearing uh you know the exercise of that power and stuff it's not something that you know i'm a woman i it's not something that speaks to me i you know i can speak to i can only speak to that from a personal perspective of being you know the object of that right like i had a father sure and, like that i think probably to many listeners and and probably to you like this idea that your father would be you know freaked out um in this way is, is has a very real life analog um yes I, I i do think though that there there's an interesting aspect we can talk about more abstractly from like an older person's perspective in terms of sort of the fear of the young right and mm-hmm. from that viewpoint, I think I do feel like it it touches me more directly, right? And so, um, uh, and there's a couple ways to to think about this. I think one one thing that comes to mind is um, I I can't remember where I I read or heard this, but I remember in the last year or two reading somewhere that where somebody had said that like a lot of original fairy tales, you know how there's always a stepmother, an evil stepmother or stepfather in them. I'd read somewhere that uh, that the, in in many of these tales originally those were not step parents; those were like parents. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. That seemed unpalatable. That we would have, mm-hmm. you know, parents and children uh, at odds in such a fundamental way. And so, when people went to write them down in a more, you know, they tried to tame them a bit by making them step parents. And so, mm-hmm. I think from you know, like a. Uh, sort of mythological or archetypical sort of perspective, I think there is something to be said where uh, the older generation and the younger generation are often in opposition and the the old, uh, older people f- fear younger people, right? Like we're, we're in um, decline effectively, right? Um, mm-hmm. And you have this generation coming up behind you that you don't entirely trust uh, and you know the pitfalls ahead and you you can't control them. They're going they're going to be the future, whether you like it or not. They're going to be ascendant over you ultimately, and so uh, I think there's very much a natural trepidation about that very natural fact of life. Um, yeah, and I th- I think you see that in Luke's portrayal, right? Like he he knows he can't really control their story or control uh, their powers, and it's uh, frightening. And I think that's something that every older adult feels and you, you often see in sort of in in the nicer form with with adults grousing about the younger generation or whatever um sure uh and then i think there's also an aspect too which i think maybe we can touch more on towards the end of our discussion but there is an aspect of 
uh, again, tying into the feelings of sort of failure and responsibility where he sort of sees himself both as the responsible uh, person in Ben's story and now he's the responsible person in Ray's story. And I I think, you know, his he feels like he's losing a grip on Ray in the same way that he lost his grip on Kylo Ren. And so he um, it just underlines feelings of failure again right feelings of lack of control lack of responsibility not being able to meet the expectations of his heroic role and so just underlines all that and so that there's a there's a a heightened anxiety and emotion that comes from that yeah no exactly so um, obviously we were talking about this whole concept of the fisher king wound and like the agony that that causes and how it sticks with you and I think we settled on this idea that Luke himself admits that the wound is hubris. That's his ultimate flaw, his ultimate moral failing. But I suppose that like the absolute physical, concrete manifestation of that hubris is Kylo Ren. And it is the fact that he exists in the form that he currently exists. So I I think there's lots of trauma for Luke in even seeing him. To be honest, sure. Sure. yeah, because yeah, he flips out, and it definitely goes beyond seeing a strange, dangerous boy in your daughter's bedroom. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> There's lots going on. We obviously get the big drama and the serious angst for Luke of discovering Rain Kylo like together. And his like knee-jerk response to that is quite interesting because obviously he dons the Jedi robes again, gets that flaming torch out, and he like marches straight over to that over to that tree. And he's like, right, this time I'm actually gonna do it. I'm actually gonna burn the bloody tree down, um, because it's almost like a backsliding for him when he sees that, because he'd clearly been making some sort of progress over the course of the film, because you see these like reflective moments and you see those like moments of communion with Leia which do like signal some sort of re-engagement with the world whereas the act of attempting to burn the tree down it's a sort of nihilistic move it's a move like it's all hopeless there's no point to any of this I just need to end everything so there's something very destructive about that and obviously that is the point at which Yoda appears um, to counsel Luke and to get him to wake up basically so i thought lisa we could have some fun and read it out by assuming the roles of luke and yoda would you like to be luke or yoda oh uh, i'll be luke because you've already shown your excellent voice acting skills and i would love to hear you as yoda (laughs) okay thank you oh my god (laughs) so it is time for the jedi order to end Time it is hmm? for you to look past a pile of old books. Hmm? The sacred Jedi texts. Oh, read them, have you? Well, I... Page turners, they were not. Yes, yes, yes. Wisdom they held. But that library contained nothing that the girl Ray does not already possess. Ah, Skywalker, still look into the horizon. Never here. Pokes, pokes, pokes. Um, <laughs> now, hmm? The need in front of your nose. I was weak, unwise. Lost Ben Solo, you did. Lose Ray, you must not. 
I can't be what she needs me to be. Heeded my words not, did you? Pass on what you have learned. Strength, mastery, hmm? But weakness, folly, failure also. Yes, failure, most of all. The greatest teacher failure is. Luke, we are what they grow beyond. This is the true burden of all masters. Very, very nice. Yeah, well done. Thank you. You did a great Luke too. You can pat yourself on the back. Um, yeah, like I love this exchange. It's so beautiful. And I think that final line of advice from Yoda, I think that's already become iconic, deservedly so, because it's just so damn good. Sure. Um, but yeah, like this is clearly like a pivotal moment of healing for Luke. Because this is the moment that takes Luke from feeling completely despondent and hopeless about everything to actually rejoining the fight, to going out and being that active participant in the world again. So, yeah, what for you makes this advice so effective? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think, again, this is a, this is a, it goes to the heart of the stuff that interests me in, in this story, right? And that we're, we're focusing on failure and like i said for me every day i feel like a failure and so how do how do i how do i live with that what do i do with that feeling Mm. um and uh i think you know yoda comes in with the right message right that you need to you know not only accept the failures that you have embrace them and consider them something that you can um share right with the people around you particularly the younger people because they will will take your failures and then and then learn from them and build upon them right and um i think you kind of see that in luke's story of his youth right that that um yoda arguably yoda and obi-wan had failures um and luke was able to step beyond them and do something that they couldn't realize or figure out how to do because he sort of learned from the failures that went before and likewise in the cycle that is you know life uh ray will also be able to learn from luke's failures and and move forward right and um uh, yeah it, it speaks to me really meaningfully and i think you know when i've talked to friends in life or whatever who are struggling certainly talked to a few people in the past few years who had like major life challenges where, you know, they'd lose a job or something and they would say, you know, what, what am I going to tell my children? And that was the thing that was the most um, painful of those experiences for them. And I, and I remember at the time always saying, like, I, I, you know, I can't imagine doing anything, but like telling your children about your failures in detail. Cause I know from my own experience in my own life, whenever I think back of my childhood where my parents were struggling in some way and where things meaningfully did not go their way and I learned of that and stuff, it always, and maybe it's just me, but I always found it always strengthened my respect for my parents, right? That they could, mm. I could see how that they could struggle and move beyond um, where, where they were. And I think if you don't, if you don't share your failures with um, your children and the younger generation, uh, it's going to be problematic because we all we all end up in a place of failure sooner or later, and it's not something that people generally share or talk about. Um, they tend to keep yeah. their failures close to hand, and so if you're if the people who love you haven't 
shared shared their failures with you and shown you how to work through them and that you, life goes on and and all the good lessons that come out of that, then when you run up across those failures in your life for the first time, you'll you'll feel like, well, why did I fail and nobody else seems to be failing? Um, yeah. And so it's I think it's really important from that respect. So. Yeah, no, that's so true. Um, yeah, no, so we get that beautiful moment of healing with Luke and Yoda. So basically, if Yoda is like the pharmacist in that scene, he is prescribing the cure for Luke's ailment. Then for the rest of the movie where we see Luke, we actually see him applying that cure and like becoming whole again. And the first sign of that wholeness is obviously that reunion with Leia, which is so beautiful and so well handled. Um, and I won't ask around of this one by doing a silly voice, I'll just read it out. So it's Luke, Leia, I'm sorry, Leia, I know, I know you are. I'm just glad you're here at the end, Luke. I came to face him, Leia, and I can't save him. Leia, I held out hope for so long, but I know my son is gone. Luke, no one's ever really gone. So it's a really, really brief exchange, but I think it's so beautiful and eloquent as a healing moment. Because I think for me, the part that registers the most profoundly in relation to our conversation is that whole aspect of I can't save him. That's Luke accepting that and acknowledging that and most importantly, being at peace with that. Like what speaks to you most loudly from this whole reunion moment, Lisa? Ah, uh, God, that's such a great scene. It is wonderful. Yeah, it's it's my favorite thing in the movie, actually. Mm. Yeah, I would say it's the same thing, right? It's the it's the saying, I I I can't save him. Um, it certainly cut, cuts deep deep to me as a particularly as a parent. I mean, the the scenes in The Force Awakens between Leia and Han where they're talking about Ben um, and how they desperately want to help him but can't um, also hit me really hard, right, as a parent. Mm, um, yeah. I think this is something that uh, is, is really hard for parents to come to terms with right like I, I think you sort of mentioned earlier that you know as a child you sort of saw you know your parents as you know very powerful people right sure and yeah. I think I think we all start in that position and then when you become a parent you think well I'm gonna I'm gonna raise my child right it's gonna everything's gonna be perfect for them I'm gonna I'm gonna you know right all the wrongs and do everything perfectly for this child and then you know, growing up in that space is learning, oh, no, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> like, there's no way to make the life life perfect for your child. Um, I mean, you do your best, and it's worth trying to do your best. But um, uh, no matter what you do, there's no way to entirely insulate them from pain. Um, there's no way to do everything perfectly. There's no way to not not do harm yourself right that, that's that's always mm. going to happen to some degree or another and um i think um i think like you know and this is i think the part where i was saying that like in where i was sort of meditating on into the woods a lot before uh the last jedi came out because the second half of into the woods has a lot of content in it about um parents and what we can expect from them and what uh 
their failures are and stuff. And there's a great song like in the middle of that show, which got excluded from the film version, which makes me super sad because it feels like a really important song. But it's a song that's called um, No More. And it's sung mm-hmm. by this character who has just had a had a baby. And it's in the second half of the show where everything is going wrong. Like the first half, everybody did the actions to get their wishes. And it ends with happily ever after. It's sort of standard fairy tale. In the second half, you see the rep- repercussions of everything that they've done. And there are negative consequences to what they've done. And they're sort of, sort of grappling with sort of the guilt of, uh, you know, climbing up the beanstalk or killing the wolf or all the things that happened in the first half of the fairy tales. And mm. the um, baker, like, he he runs away from his son. He abandons his son. And this song, and his his father is, is sort of a hermit, you know, character that's living in the woods and sort of appears to him to try to convince him to go back. And they sing this song, they have this back and forth. And um, like the his father sort of says to him, speaks in riddles to him and says, they disappear, they dis- disappoint, they die, but they don't. They disappear, in turn, I fear, forgive though they won't. And then I think at the end, when they sort of come to resolution in that song, the baker says, we disappoint, we leave a mess, we die, but we don't. We disappoint in turn, I guess, forget that we won't, like father, like son. And so I was hard not to, you know, think about that in the context of Force Awakens. And I think you see similar sentiments show up at the end of this movie with Luke and um, Ben, right, in terms of uh, Ben is very disillusioned and disappointed in Luke. Luke was supposed to protect him. Luke was supposed to be that, you know, parental figure for him. Um, and he failed. And Luke is trying to deal with the consequences of that. And that's sort of what, like, as as the Baker character in Into the Woods runs away in the middle of the show, Luke runs away. Um, and then he, Luke has to find a way to um, deal with that. And I like I said earlier, I think the, the thing that you have to learn to do as a parent um, and what Luke is learning how to do is to recognize that even though you're going to make mistakes, even though you can't set things right, even though the, your children are going to chart their own course in life that you can't uh, prevent them from foundering, uh, that does not absolve you of the responsibility of showing up and yeah. that you have to show up. And you have to express your love and care and concern, even though you it's painful, even though you know that it's not going to wholly protect them, and even though you know that it can't mend or heal them necessarily. Um, and I, I think that's a real and true thing. I think it's a, it's a lovely thing for me to see as a parent, because I know, like, I have teenagers, they're just at that stage where they're making choices. Sometimes I think those choices aren't good choices, or or they're struggling with things and they're struggling in ways that I personally don't have the capacity to help them. And oftentimes you don't have the capacity to help them because of who you are, because you're the yeah. parents, you're their parents and they're at that stage where they need to break from you or because they, f- they, it's the conflict between you. That is the thing that is in contention. You especially cannot heal that rift or solve that problem. And this statement of I can't save him sort of cuts to that directly for me anyway on a personal level and so I super love that about the film yeah that's really fabulous Um, and I feel like this is the perfect segue into that moment with Luke and Kylo Um, so would you like to do another dramatic reading Lisa Uh, and could I like call dibs on being Kylo please oh please yes (laughs) okay (laughs) 
Okay. I'll try to do my cool. best dad here. I don't know. It's kind of rough. <laughs> this is so, just so weird. I'll, I love I'll, it I'll channel my father here. Okay, great. Did you come back to say you forgive me? To save my soul? No. The two draw their lightsabers. Ren charges at Luke, who blocks and dodges each blow as he returns to a ready stance. I failed you, Ben. I'm sorry. I'm sure you are. The resistance is dead. The war is over. And when I kill you, I will have killed the last Jedi. Amazing. Every word of what you just said was wrong. The rebellion is reborn today. The war is just beginning. And I will not be the last Jedi. I'll destroy her. And you. And all of it. He extinguishes his lightsaber. No. Strike me down in anger and I will always be with you. Just like your father. Ren charges at Luke one last time, swinging his lightsaber while screaming furiously. However, he sees that Luke is still standing. Confused, he puts his lightsaber through Luke before staring in horror as he realises he's been fighting a force projection all this time. It has also been revealed that Luke is still physically on Act 2. No. See you around, kid. His force projection fades away. And Kylo turns to see the resistance has escaped like a noob. No! (laughs) I had way too much fun with that. (laughs) Sorry. Oh my god, so much fun to be Kylo. That was amazing. Like, I just need to read the whole movie now. Yeah, and I think this exchange is, just ties in perfectly to what we've been saying about, like, as a parental figure, you need to, like, be there. You need to, like, be prepared to engage and to be a guide and be helpful. But you also need to accept that you won't be able to control them and that you and that they're very unlikely to listen to you a lot of the time and like yeah a big part of it is letting go and allowing them to make their mistakes and to find their own way well and it's about finding the right balance between that and also being supportive yeah absolutely um yeah no i i love i love that the way Luke comes to accept all that rage, right? Like that's, that's what he's doing at that moment. I mean, it's not like he's not doing anything. He's, he's showed up to apologize and then he's showed up to let Ren, you know, flail at him. And I think there's a a lesson in that for, for Ben, right? That um, he can expend, you can expend all your hatred and, and put all the responsibility on, you know, Luke and Han and every all the father figures he's killed or tried to kill. <laughs> this trilogy. So many. It's a long list. But at, at the <laughs> end, it's it's not going to give him the satisfaction that he's seeking, right? And so at some point you have to... It's it's funny because, you know, because uh, Kylo Ren is, you know, has that thing like that, he, you know, he's trying to, that you have to, you know kill the past or whatever but he's he's absolutely controlled by it and you can kind of see that in this interaction right like this if if you if you if you feel like you've separated yourself from your parents and your past they don't enrage you in this way right and so yeah he luke allows him to burn out effectively right like let fan that fire as hot as you want it's not gonna help you reach any sense of peace and so yeah. I think that's super cool about it. 
Um, and then I, I like the part about, you know, strike me down in anger and I will always be with you just like your father. Because um, I think that's, that's tr- true. I mean, what I like more is what that says about his relationship to what happened with Han, because that was always... Um, I, Ryan Johnson and I have like the exact same reading of that whole movie. Um, but mm. that was something that I, you know, in my original commentary with Dan, it was almost a point of contention between us. I sort of brought that up. I said, oh, look, he, you know, Kylo Ren cut down his father. And I think that's like an Obi-Wan moment where he becomes more powerful be- because of it, right? Like he, he looms forever in his son's mind in that final moment of love and forgiveness. And he won't ever be able to remove himself from that because that's his father's last act. It sort of solidifies that about his father. Whereas if he'd not killed his father, um, he could continue to hate him or have visions of him or like he becomes, he's still a living thing. But once you've sort of slice him down and he's expresses his love in that moment, um, that locks that to you forever. And so um, it's a similar thing happening here, right? Where Luke is making a sacrifice um, that's meant to be, although I'm sure it's hard for Kylo Ren to see this, but it's meant to be a sacrifice of love, I think. And so, yeah, sure. uh, so I super like that part too. Yeah. It's quite fascinating, isn't it? So I've seen so many people react to this scene and perceive Luke as like being like sassy and, um, like mocking Kylo basically. <laughs> and like, there is like an element of, like cheekiness in how Luke interacts with him. So obviously you get like the flick of the dust off the shoulder and stuff. And that is a bit cheeky. But I do ultimately think it is about being like supportive and it's about like having the ultimate show of patience, basically. It kind of reminds me a bit of like there is like a toddler like shrieking and like throwing a massive tantrum on the ground and the adult, instead of like engaging or also getting enraged and passionate and frustrated about the situation, they just remain completely still and calm. And with the eventual hope, presumably, of the child eventually going calm themselves. And I know I'm dramatically infantilizing 30 year old Kylo Ren slash Ben Solo <laughs> with that comparison. But I, I do think there's something similar going on. Yeah, I think there's an aspect of being a parent that always touches on that. I can I still remember vividly having my the first time my oldest child told me I hate you, and Aww. and that was and it was fine. I mean, like, I don't remember it as a bad thing, but I I because I remember yeah. it as a as an opportunity to love my kid, right? Like I, I, my kid was a toddler at the time, and we were I was trying to get them to lie down for a nap, and they were super upset Aww. about that, and they just they were maybe two. And they turned to me and said, I hate you. And I said, that's okay. I said, I love you anyway. And it just made them made them all the more angry, just like Kylo <laughs> Ren was angry. But yeah, I mean, I, I get that, that sentiment. Yeah, no, it's very typical. And that also just for the comedy value, I love the, the like whole juxtaposition of Luke saying, see you around, kid. And then to Kylo, that is clearly just the worst possible reality. <laughs> Because that is the words. It's like, no, oh, God. (laughs) That alone makes me want to see like a web series, like where it's just like Luke popping up at inopportune times (laughs) and Kylo just like rocking back and forth. And it's like, please, please stop. I'll do anything. Luke just comes by just to tisk tisk various things that he's doing, maybe. (laughs) Yes. 
Like, that's the real reason why Kylo turns back to the light. He just could not bear the humiliation anymore. So, so do you do you think Luke, Luke and, and and Ben are going to have interaction, like actual interactions, in the next um, film? Oh yeah, I definitely think Force Ghost Luke will. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, like because I think that's going to be really key to this whole exchange, because obviously it's up to JJ what he does with it. But this, to me, sets up a promise from Luke to be there and to have that active role, like in whatever capacity a Force Ghost can have an active role, which is presumably going to be in doling out advice and some home truths as needed. But yeah, like I think he's going to be there as a guide to Kylo, basically. And like it'll be interesting to see how they play it. So they could play it in quite a light way if they wanted. Not like super slapstick or silly, because... There's only so far you can go with being silly when it's Kylo Ren because Adam Driver's just too intense. Um, but yeah, like I think ultimately there's going to have to be some core of emotional truth there about someone trying to heal you and trying to help you and that eventually working and that eventually breaking through for you. Because like at this point in the film, in, in the trilogy, Kylo Ren obviously still has a journey to go on and a way to go before he can actually begin his own healing and begin to accept that advice and support that is on offer and is available to him so yeah i like to see that we'll see him embrace that in the next one cool so yeah like i think that brings us to like the natural end point which is of course luke dying with peace and purpose um and obviously in star wars it's not a super permanent death because He's going to be back as a force ghost. We all know it. Um, But yeah, like really, it felt like what else can you do at this stage of that character to me? It just felt like completely inevitable. Like he really has finished his journey, like is in his mythic grand journey, like by the time the film is up. So I really think that if he had been kept around as a living being, he kind of just would have felt like an accessory and it would have felt like you were robbing the character somehow of more active role so i think having him as a force ghost is perfect because he can have that guiding supportive role but there will be no expectation of him having another journey of self-discovery or anything to go on yeah um no it kind of reminds me of i think i was i had just read i, I probably knew this before but i was sort of reading about um, marcia lucas and her contributions to the original star wars film marcia mm-hmm. was you know uh george lucas's wife and she was an editor on the film and um sort of advised him on writing to some extent and i i guess like uh you know originally obi-wan was supposed to be through throughout the whole uh movie in a new hope but Lucas was struggling what to do with him after they blew up the Death Star. You know, he was just sort of like hanging around while Luke did other stuff, right? It just didn't make any sense. And it was Marsha who said, why, why don't you uh, kill him? And uh, and that was a good choice, right? Because mm. uh, he's an important, you know, he's an important figure. And if he's hanging around, you expect him to do something else and stuff. And so leaving him, you know, in a state where he can, you know, pop in for a little advice, but not... We don't need to, we're not telling his story, so we don't really need him hanging around. It's probably the right thing for him to not be with us anymore. And the same thing for Luke. I think we've, we've, Luke has at the, this point, you know, gone through the transition that he needs to go through. He's reached a point of acceptance in terms of uh, coming to terms with 
you know, his previous failures, the fact that he is uh, a real human being with fallibility um, and is more than a hero, but yet still has an obligation to occupy that heroic role because it, it, it offers something to others just as he has an obligation to play that sort of familiar or um, mentor role to Kylo Ren because it, it plays an important role but he doesn't have to do it perfectly. He just has to show up and, and do what he can, um, and he's come to terms with that. So at that point, he's he's sort of gone through all the transitions that we expect from a person, and so it's fine for him to to move on. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's so beautiful as well because you get the wonderful like imagery of the twin suns setting and that warm golden light falling over Luke. And yeah, like it ties into that whole idea of characters ascending and descending because Luke is descending at that point. Like his like journey is like in the decline and it's time for Rey and Finn and Poe and Kylo to ascend as this next generation and to figure their, their own way through the narrative and have their adventures with some very valuable support from the previous generation. So, yeah, it's really awesome, basically. Yeah, it's a great movie. It really is. Um, yeah, so I think we should probably wrap up here. Are there any, like, final words? Yeah, yeah well, thanks very much for having me. Having me. I'm, uh, I, I'm sorry, Kirsty's not available, because I love listening to you guys together, but I'm, you know, very happy for her. Um, and I look forward to coming back and, uh, and I'll certainly be interested in hearing who else you've lined up as guests because I'm sure it'll be interesting to get a slightly different take on things oh yeah no thank you um, and yeah we'd obviously love to have you on again at some point as well because yeah you've been a jolly good guest so yeah it's awesome um, okay so let's round things off uh, so are there any corners of the internet you would like to signpost people to where they can find other stuff that you've done in the Star Wars sphere, Lisa? Oh, um, yeah. So the primary place, if people like listening to me talk about Star Wars, the primary place to go is to YouTube. And if you search for Dan and Lisa, watch Star Wars, you'll find um, a number of commentaries I've done with my husband, as well as one that I did with Rachel. So. Uh, yeah, and for where you can find me, I am Stars Nonsense on Tumblr and Journal of the Stars on WordPress. So yeah, thank you so much for listening, guys, and until next time, bye. Bye.